This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubian. Good everything. Before before we, uh, and thank you, Happy New Year's Eve, those of you, wherever you are in the world. Uh, yeah. So, um, so yesterday, you know, I have a con- contractor in my house like every day. And yeah. so I, I left because, you know, he wasn't there. And I said, I'll be back in four minutes. And yeah. I got in the house in four minutes, you know, and he said, you're not very African. He said, he's from Egypt. He told me I wasn't very African because I was punctual. And I really? thought about that. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, Africans have a different way of thinking about time. I don't know if that's. Is true. he? Um, He's Egyptian. Yeah. But I mean, what kind of Egyptian? A brown Egyptian? I don't know. I guess they're all brown. Should, I ask, yeah, him, should I ask him, like, what, what kind of Egyptian should he be? Like, you a, know, just ask him where he's from. I mean, I, I'm saying because just about everybody, I won't say everybody, but the overwhelming majority of people in, in Egypt, if they came here, kept their mouth shut, would be with us. It's not even like like most things. But when you go, when you see the Nubians, you know the Nubians immediately because they literally look like us. Like when we okay. go, to, when we get to Aswan, uh, Aswan is Nubia. So Elephantine Island, all those people, um, they they're Africans. When you get to when we go to Luxor, it's a more of a mix. But those people more kind of browner skin. You go to Cairo, it's everybody, obviously. And, you know, a lot of Arabs. Now, of course, Arabic, Arabs, it, it's a real it's a real question because uh, not the same, but at least in a similar kind of ballpark as those who would say Jews are a distinct mix of ethnicities. Shout out to Ubi Goldberg for getting in trouble. Anyway, because you can't talk about this. Right, exactly. We can sip at that point. Um, and I say that because in the Sudan, which is now Sudan and South Sudan, but in Sudan now, we would call Sudan now because it's two countries where Khartoum, from Khartoum going toward Egypt, those people are Africans, but they would say they are Arabs. And the question is, why would you call yourself Arab? Well, I speak Arabic. I'm a Muslim. It's a culture. And that's, and that's why I brought it up because. Yeah. So I'm just saying your contractor, if he were home, what would he call himself? He you might know, call himself African at the World Cup, but when he get home, how do you treat the Nubians? That's my. Oh take. well, no, he's he's t- completely, um, you know, into Nubian culture. Oh like, well, in that case, then yeah. So, like, but my my question, you know, because the quest this 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 whole journey is not even this year because we we can't even um, break things up. Even the notion of a new year. Uh, being January first is very uh, not us. Um, right. It's not. It's not correct. Right. Um, Christmas, Jesus' birthday, not correct. Right. Um, all all of these things, you know, are woven into a uh, power structure to right. to make people comply. That's and right. so I'm, you know, trying to not trying. We are breaking free from that, but at the same time, we have to remember. So I'm I'm just I'm asking a fundamental question because uh, there are a lot of Nubians right now who are like you know if we come in five minutes late you know they they're harassing uh, Ahmad he's like um so what time I said put ish at the end <laughs> shout out Ahmad because I was looking for my actually ish you know because I was looking for my copy of the Times with uh, New York Times with Pele's obituary but we're gonna talk about Edison yeah Edison. Oh, Pele everybody but you know it's like um. 
we are on the clock because of of having to get up to feel you know to to pick cotton and stuff right so there's a clock there's a bell there's a clock there's a bell and everything is very like we have to get up and do something and if we don't do it at that time then there's a punishment maybe there's a lash maybe we get fired maybe we get fined maybe there's docking of pay you know we are conditioned like pavlov's dogs no question who to even have alarm, I don't have an alarm clock. Full disclosure, I get up when I when I get up. Um, me neither. I cannot uh, do that to myself. But, nah, me but there are people that have to get up and can't get up, and they need an alarm clock. But it's all of that is still conditioning. So I'm just as we move into this next spin of the wheel, um, I'd like to spend uh, us all of us to spend more time in our bodies, in our spirits, in our minds, in ourselves, and mm -hmm. and really start to contemplate who we really are. In, mm in this power structure, who we yes. really are in our community. Do do we line up our words? You know, because it's not just about, I'm going to be here at a certain time. What does that mean? Like, we all need to be in agreement with what that means. But also, it's about, like, we're going to gather around this time. We'll get here, because Dr. Carr and I, I'm not rushing the conversations we had before this, because they're precious to me. I don't get a lot of time. Thank you. So I'm like, y'all going to wait a few minutes. Same. I'm sorry. We, we catch up. But yeah, no, but you know, I'm just, I'm really contemplating like, what does it mean to be here? Why mm. are we here? What does it mean to be in this community? What does it mean to be in community? And what is our contribution to that? And how do we treat each other? How do we speak? You know, mm. what mm. does it mean to be in community? What does it mean to be in community? How do we where would we look for clues as to, to answer that question? Until I met you, um, you know, I had a uh, an edict by which I lived, you know, and, and it's weird, you know, because most of us don't run into people who actually really care about people. So we're always, kept, you know, like the trust building. Like oh, I, you know, I had to, you know, engender trust with you. Just All of us, same here, no question, no question. Same you know, here. Like there's a trust that we, we distrust each other, but it's inherent in this condition in 400 years of like betrayal, not even at our own, you know, behest. We're not betraying because we're betraying to live. It's not like we want to betray, but then at, at what point does the habit become become the condition? At what point does the mm -hmm. habit become the condition? So I, I think about this because I know several people who are in media right now that I know personally that, you know, they made a bargain. Um, and in, in their minds, they tell themselves, I'm doing this, you know, because I'm going to get us there. You know, like I'm playing the game. I'm playing the game. I'm just playing the game. But then you you, you are still playing the game. Okay, you got you got 12 million? I, I started watching the Deion Sanders um Documentary last night. He's one. Shout out to Coach Prime, my man, Coach Prime. Thank you, thank you, Coach. You you had no idea you were going to be so helpful to us, and so I wish you all the best. I hope you have a hell of a coaching staff because when they find out that you ain't no X's and O's coach, been exposed by the HBCUs the last few years of on that tip. Hopefully, you'll be able to overcome that. I think you will because you've recruited a hell of a talent. But how is Coach Prime? Oh wait, so they made this after he went to Colorado. That's fascinating how quickly they got together. And uh, wait, what they didn't. No, no, and it's rock. The rock is the whole thing. The whole thing's done. And so, so, and it's interesting because the rock came out. There's the XFL. I mean, it's a, it's a whole thing, and it's and it is beautiful. You know, for for those of us who aren't in community, it looks all of the things. You know, and all of the words are just so beautiful. And I'm not even thinking about Deion Sanders when I'm saying this. Yeah. There's a particular person I'm thinking about. But I'm like, you know, at what point is the game playing you, and you no longer 
know that you know I'm I'm just playing the game. I'm just playing the game. Okay. Um. All right. So now, ten million, twelve million. You got your house. You got everything. You okay? So you still you still doing this? Now it's you, right? Because if you do something over and over again, it be, it's no longer a habit. It becomes yeah who you true. are. It's uh. Can't the last poet said, uh, is it in uh, New York? New York, the big apple talks about a brother. One of the lines talks about a brother being on the subway, and it said, Here's a brother being sucked in by all that S on the wall. In other words, <laughs> if you stay there long enough, or as I is uh, Malala Karinga says often, I've heard him say this many times, uh, if you live in a whorehouse, and I'm not using whore in a gendered sense. It could be women or men. Uh, but if you live in a house of ill repute, prostitution, people, sex worker, sex trade, only put a moral judgment on it. But Karinga said, if you live in that house, sooner or later, you're going to pull your money out. The whole point being, <laughs> the context is very important. I mean, even, even people want to do different. Like, we had the engendered trust, no question. But we didn't start the same place strangers start because Ajwa brought me up there and I, entry. I, That's I, right. so therefore I think a, a one key to building community is relationships if somebody came to you and said I, said I don't know you yeah but I know so-and-so really so you check with so-and-so and so yeah, you know yeah that's true okay <laughs> yeah I mean that, that's the step now it doesn't get us there but it's it gets us at the now what we've been doing these last couple of years several years and I'm so excited for 23 as we just continue we're building relationships People can trust, you know, that thing is uh, every Monday night, but this past Monday night was just when the young brother came in. Niles, um, yeah, I reached out to him because oh, I'm excellent. I had to because I'm like, oh, he's special. Niles is special. Yeah. And he and it took us back last year when uh sister Lisa Latouche, who is of course a tap dancer and practitioner and teacher, born and raised in Canada, and then just tying it all together. But no, the, so yeah, I mean, how uh how we build community and how you know it's funny in terms of time. You mentioned that. Uh one of course the best books that opened us up to a relationship to the brother who came in and had a conversation with all of us in Nubia, Howard French, born in blackness, which we won't put in 2022 because it came out in 2021. But of course, Howard talks about Barbados and how this mentality, the Dutch then the English, everybody who enslaved us, but really starting out with those early enslavers who experimented on how to extract the, the greatest amount of labor wealth from us. Everything was, uh, they attempted to reduce everything to numbers. X number of sugarcane stalks cut, X number of cotton balls picked, X number of export rum made. How, how long did it take? Okay, what's the average age this person can work at this age before they collapse and die? And how many boats we got to bring in every month to keep this labor? And we're going to take records. That's why the archive is so full with ledgers, because they literally did that. And so uh, it reminds me of two things. Uh, my friend Dana King, who uh, did curriculum work and ran social studies and African-American studies for the schools of Philadelphia when we developed the curriculum frame. She used to laugh and say when we would get together and be together for hours working through curriculum thinking and she said now see y'all came over my house we supposed to be here at noon y'all come stumbling in one two o'clock now seven eight o'clock we didn't sit but we got the work done because it couldn't start till everybody was there and she said it reminds me of the joke I once heard a kind of African tell me say when white people showed up in Africa 
and black people started talking with them and then they said you know what is their concept of god the africans talking to each other so what is their concept of god one african looked at the other african and pointed at the clock and said that's their god their god is the clock they do things based on where that little hand goes that's what you you see them show up they all looking at that little hand and the other story reminds me of is my my dear friend master teacher ceo and 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 and, and principal of uh sankofa freedom academy our freedom school in philadelphia aisha imani when she was a teacher at william penn high school in north philly and i used to go down there when i was a graduate student at temple and we would i would go down there once a week to teach african-american history and that's when i got to know aisha many years ago this is in the the, the early 90s so at any rate, the bell would ring in William Penn. And those of you from Philly know the old William Penn High School, no longer there. Temple made it a practice football field, you know, gentrification. But I'm glad they knocked that place down because it looked like a prison. They built it that way. It's that kind of brutalist style that was in the 70s, 80s. And so not a lot of closed spaces, those open spaces where you can put the dividers up and move things around, you know. The bell would ring. And Aisha was in charge of a, a small learning community. That was when they were experimenting with small learning communities called Masterminds, culturally based. She's a math, math, mathematician by training, just a brilliant sister. But at any rate, the bell would ring and invariably the other students who were coming from the other classes would have to wait because the students in Masterminds would still be in some deep conversation. Aisha got them doing I said, we sent her. And then they would always be late going to their next class. This is where I'm going with this. Here's, 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 the, here's the point of it. It raises this question as you're talking about time and we're talking about relationships, how do you build community? So they would come, say, it's time, it's time, it's time. Dr. Imani now, Mama Aisha, she put her hand up, said, oh, we are not dogs. She said, we do not respond to bells. We respond to each other. And so finish your point, sister. Then we finish your point. Okay, that's what we'll pick up tomorrow. And then the students would get up. They they had rehumanized themselves. We don't respond to bells. Because if you notice, like in school, the bell rang, no matter what's going on. And then I said, ring. Okay. And she said, uh-uh. We don't respond to bells. That clock is not our God. We value each other. And so, if, and, and what that does, it, it, it so yeah, okay, 8 o'clock, no problem. 8, 10, 8, 9, we didn't start on time. Is that your God? Your God the clock? Or do we know each other? Who are we to each other? All of these things found their way into that curriculum over the years. Who are we to each other? The relationship. <laughs> We've been taught and conditioned that, you know, if you're late, you're disrespectful. You know, it's like, all right, some people are really egregious and they use that as a- uh, Yeah, that's true. As a power, you know, it's like, if you don't have power in your own life, you're going to stall other people's. But, you know, like, you know, if you're, if you're on time, you're late, you know, like that whole mentality about corporate, the corporate um, beast, and, um, you know, for, for those of us that need to succeed in those spaces, we have to show up on time, you know, but unless we have the kind of power where we don't, hmm? unless we, unless we have the kind of power where we don't, right. Like, in other words, you got to dress for success. Mm -hmm. Unless you Elon Musk, we can show up looking like you just finished working on your car. <laughs> I mean, this is all about power at the end of the day. Right. And so let's be very clear. The way we were treated by those who enslaved us was the way they were treating each other. This whole kind, in fact, there's a, oh man, there's a book called Thinking in Time. I'll never be able to find it. It's probably in storage. But the whole book is about. Hold on, I'm writing it down. <laughs> yeah, in fact, somebody, somebody, let me, I'm pulling up the app now. Somebody look and see. Hey, if Laura's in here, she'll do it because she, among many others. I mean, Thinking in Time, it's, I'm maybe, I may be conflating it with another book that's on 
how warfare oh anyway but anyway, the, the point is this whole notion of european cultural logics and i'm not saying that this that these authors are saying specifically europeans and, and excluding other people i'm saying that the obsession of europeans with themselves means that most of the stuff that's written is anchored in their experiences so when they turn around and say see why are y'all saying this this is a glo it's never global it's never global. Braudel writing the history of the Mediterranean world, given rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Y'all always send yourselves. No problem. But what you're not going to do is act like the rest of the world is organized around your logics. But in these in these two books I'm thinking about, Thinking in Time being one, the whole idea is how are these cultures that come out of Western Eurasia or Europe, how are so many of them oriented around precision of movement and precision of time? So when people say you're disrespecting my time because you're not here on time, well, time ain't, what time got to do with our relationship? And even all the Europeans aren't the same. The, the closer you get to, and by the way, Sheikh Ante Job, of course, born 1923, December 29th, his birthday's there for yesterday. He talks about what he calls zones of confluence. He says the closer you get to the equator, the difference you see in the cultures. He said that the English, the Irish, the Swedes, they are not the Italians. They are not the Spanish. They are not the Sicilians. The closer you get to that equator, the less you see this rigid kind of compartmentalized, shrunken notion of how you move through the world. Hey, we're going to take a nap in Spain. We don't do that in England. Yeah, because it's cold as hell up here, y'all. Boom, boom, boom. The environment has shaped the way you deal with culture. But I'm saying all that to say that in thinking in time of others, they would say everything from military precision, marching in time and movement and movement, all this is the difference between a core style band at Ohio State and the Ocean of Soul at Texas Southern. It's going to be precise. We're going to have a little movement in it. We're going to do this a little bit. And we talked about that Monday night, of course, when we talk about cultural meaning making and Robert Ferris Thompson. We have to be mindful of the fact that it is unnatural for human beings to respond to artificial rhythms. The mm. sun is every day. The sun is precise as hell. But guess what? You don't need an alarm clock if you can wean yourself from that artificial machine. Because your body will respond to the sun unless you stayed up all night. In other words, the rhythms are as precise as they can get in nature. And we knew that. And we know that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, don't even, when you tell that man, I'm going to be back in four minutes. Okay. You, and I was so proud that I did it. <laughs> and I was, yes. Yeah, because, because there is a calibration. There is a calibration. The question is, is it always necessary? Because, I mean, in other words, let me ask you, let me ask you. Why, what was the meaning you were communicating to this other human being by saying that? Well, um, he operates in a... <laughs> So we've had this, this has been a back and forth. So he'll yes. say, I'll be there in 30 minutes and it'll be an hour. And so like, I was like, if you tell me 30 minutes, it's gotta be 30 minutes. Or I'm gonna leave. Right. So it's been kind of like the thing. So when I said four minutes, I had to be there four minutes because I've been like very, and he was like, so he finally was like, that's not very African of you. <laughs> I was like, Oh, I see. <laughs> you know, it, was he right? Do you know if he was raised in Egypt? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He still struggles with the language here. <laughs> it's like, yeah. all right. No reason I, I asked because, you know, when and anybody who has been there and everybody who's going for the first time coming up in August this coming year, you know, there are miles and miles of miles. And we see this other place in the world of unfinished buildings with people living in them. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying? I know you've seen that. Every, you know, Wait a minute. Let me. No, 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 no. But no, I mean unfinished. I mean like the concrete. 
<laughs> and that's it. And then you see laundry hanging up, stretching between no. them. Because people get money, they add on. You don't have enough money. Once you got the structure up and see it doesn't rain there and it doesn't get intemperate in terms of climate. So you manage and then you get a little bit more money. Every, the families live together. We don't have some mom. Okay. And so you build, I'm saying all that to say that construction projects, unless they are heavily subsidized from the beginning. And right now, Sisi, the, the ruler of Egypt, for lack of a better term, with millions of our tax dollars uh, and others, are he's building whole cities. Like they done wiped out over there by what they used to call in ancient Kemet own Heliopolis now. Um, 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 the other name will come to me in a minute between Cairo and the airport. They building all this stuff, but they got the money. They trying to bring tourism back. They doing all this stuff. I'm saying those buildings gonna go up fast. But if you don't have money, you go a little at a time. So the idea that somebody who does contract work, who is a an Egyptian, <laughs> you know, what I'm saying the idea that we will get it done means something different in a society where people don't have money like that. You know, what I'm saying? so the, they may look at him and say, dude. You're busting your ass. Wait a minute. It only took you an hour to get back? Yeah, man. Sometimes they come back two weeks. It's a we ain't got the money. But see, wait, you have money? Yeah. And you got this expectation? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to work with you. I'm going to work with you. And then it's like, I got to, re you resetting his clock. Yeah. <laughs> and now, and I, you know, what, what he did for me is, you know, I'm because I'm constantly thinking about ways in which colonized mentality, you know, rules my life. And and just eradicating that yes. little by little and just, you know, and I may come back because I'm, you know, a very kind of organized person. I think a certain kind of way, and but I'm always cool. Yeah, why do I think this way? You know, is this, is this, is this because I'm naturally, you know, or have I been conditioned? And if it's conditioning, is it good or is it bad? Like we, you know, we should have these assessments. And so he just made me sit for a minute. I, I, I still think there's value in showing up when you say you're going to oh, show no up. You don't even say things you say you're going to do. That's right. You know, but but this thing that I'm going to lean into this year, uh, grace. Mm. Relationship, right? Because the relationship, and I said this to him, the relationship that we have is way more important than whatever work. Because I, I, we we have these deep esoteric, I mean, we, we talk, you know, and it's beautiful to be able to have these conversations about not just construction and but life and Africa. I'm learning about Africa through his lens, how he's treated, you know, by people who may not know. They may mistake him for Hispanic or something, and the yes. things they say around him. Uh, he's raising really radical children who, um, <laughs> you know, are not having it, you know. And it's and it's wonderful, you know, um, having conversations with him. So I'm like, the relationship's way. So now we can rib each other. We can gently know, you know. So now it's it's fun, but you know. Even that, you know, is so important that we give each other grace. If, if the relationship is worth it, that's you know, right. if the value is there, and that's something we have to assess too. So, well, that's why I asked you, and that was there. There's the answer. Yeah. You, you're giving him those things because, as human being, y'all are building relationships, and that grace is in is is folded into this larger de desire. I mean, here we are, uh, the 31st, sixth day of Kwanzaa, Kumba, yesterday. Of course, was uh, Nia purpose? Yeah, is a purpose to that. I want a relationship with you. I want you to have a relationship with me. I want a relationship with you too. I say it's not very African to you. Okay, I'll be back in four minutes. I mean, it's language, but underneath that is something very different. That's a way of knowing. I, I want to. We have a relationship. I'm not mad, but I want. I, I I want you to do this. Okay, well, I, I want to do that too, but I, I'm not used to doing that. Okay, well, I want you to do this. Well, I'm not used to doing that, but we're gonna work through this. It's a that's a beautiful thing. Now, if you if we're listening to that with a different cultural anchor, we hear something different. 
Oh, she mad. She telling him that because he, no, 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 no. What's my purpose? Uh-huh. <laughs> I have a relationship with this. You know, you know, serious, you know? I know we we this none of this was something we were gonna talk about because a lot of answers. Don't worry, it's getting there because grace <laughs> is very prevalent. Grace is very we gave a lot of grace to uh Benedict the sixth, I think. Pope, no, did we? Who gave him grace? And you told All me the people, uh, you said he died. I was like, I, I thought he'd been done dead. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> Joseph Aloysius Ratzinger, also known as uh Pope uh Benedict the 16th, uh in 1941 and 1942. Uh come on back to me. I'm just mentioning that he uh participated in the Hitler Youth. He was a member of the Hitler Youth. Now, the excuses that were given. Uh, once he was being vetted as Pope was that, and the Simon Rosenthal Center did a did a did a, a search of his background. Well, everybody was in the Hitler Youth. That's not true. There were some hardcore Catholics who who did not join the Hitler Youth. But he was not a Nazi. He was a teenager in Germany. You know what I'm saying? And and they say, well, there's some evidence that his family, you know, was anti-Nazi. Okay, no problem. Well, how could he still get be the Pope? Oh, you gave him grace. Let's see. So do we get grace? No, you, you know what? Hold on now. Grace is for human beings. Y'all not human. So we're going to go back through your whole life. And if you were three years old and belched and we smelled some, something on your breath that smelled like perhaps the adjacent to marijuana, you cannot be on the spring. Well, yeah, my man's over here and get fall out dead ass drunk. And uh, you call the FBI and tell him really don't go too hard on this. And he could be a whole Supreme Court justice. Shout out to uh, all the party goers this, who've been with white supremacists over the last month, including uh, uh, Justice Beer, Kavanaugh. But my point is, grace is grace is reserved for people who see people's humanity. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI now uh, passed away or a couple of hours ago, got grace from some people because he still got to be the Pope, even though he was dead ass in the Hitler Youth in 1941 and 42. If memory serves me correctly, there was a whole war going on at the time. Uh, but at any rate, <laughs> so when you say grace, yeah, it all grace is a funny thing. In order to have grace, you must first want to extend grace to another person. Right? You know, I was a teenager. I remember being conscious and knowing stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right and wrong and you know injustice uh inhumanity i remember being a teenager i remember being a teen, 10 year old recognizing you know what watching and reading roots that something was wrong you know like i don't think that's an excuse right that he was a, a teenager um because you oh, know they, no i mean they every german knew when the dust was in the air what was happening they knew that that was bodies being incinerated right they knew that all of the jewish people d- disappeared they knew that they knew that right they didn't know that they were rounded up they they knew about crystal knock right because that happened they 10 years before they knew they knew right so yeah. you in the hitler youth you know what the mission is when they talk about the aryan race and the master race and all that you know no they, they they knew and the child, Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse knew what he was doing, right? When he went, oh, well, Kyle Rittenhouse. I mean, he knew, right? Like he was a teenager, but somehow, you know, Tamir Rice doesn't get grace, but he, you know, he can cry bullet tears, and you know, like it's in a little boy that was just recently killed by this man, uh, got out of his car uh, and shot him in Columbus, um, Ohio, and st- and walking the streets. In fact, uh, Roland's uh, on vacation, but uh, we, she came on uh, Roland Martin and Phil, his mother, that little boy got killed and this man not only wasn't charged yet by the da in columbus they haven't brought it to the grand jury he already had he, he he's not supposed to be in possession of a gun he already had domestic violence case right yes, he, probation he, and yeah. his mama told us this man not only still walking free he walking around the same apartment complex talking stuff posting stuff on on social media 
I know exactly where that is. I lived in Columbus for five years, Ohio. Yeah, right there, Southwest Columbus. He's in that apartment complex, walking around as we here right now. Now, now tell now what would you? Well, do but we're violent people because you know if we were truly um <laughs> all the things that uh, people say we are. Um, you wouldn't be walking around. George George Zimmerman, a whole bunch of people would be walking around. I'm just saying, like if we were all of those things, which we're not. Craig Butler, the young brother's name was Sine Reed. That's right, young Sine Reed. Yeah, Craig Butler's still walking around. And you know what? That's interesting. Uh, Seth Robinson talks about that. You know, why don't why don't we just kill everybody? That's a cultural grounding as well. Now, in this situation, what do we do, Professor Hunter? Because this is so, the same attitude that would tell us to tell people this is the greatest country in the world, United States, and we should. Uh-uh. This man, this man straight up killed a child, and he is walking around, and y'all won't charge him. So, so tomorrow or February or in July when something else happens we burn the whole city of Columbus down you gonna bring a camera out here and say this that didn't that didn't happen then that happened when Sine Reed was murdered right right mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying people don't understand that I mean Kwanzaa it's so funny how everybody's adopting Kwanzaa now and uh I think Keith Mays has written there's a whole hallmark, hallmark uh shout out shout out to Hollywood yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a whole. She got a Hallmark show around Kwanzaa. I was around like, Kwanzaa. Through Hallmark? Uh, was that Holly Robinson Pete? Yes. Yeah, yes. I saw her in the King King Club dress, everything immaculate. I'm like, yeah. In fact, I did, I resisted the urge. I know I somewhere around here in this in this library, I got a copy of the Rugrats Kwanzaa. <laughs> but it's somewhere around here, and I remember about a couple of months ago, I said I should put this aside, and I didn't do it. But well, the point why is that you even buy that though. <laughs> oh no, because. I mean, look, if I got two nickels to rub together, I'll probably take them both. Wait, now you got me Google the Rugrats Kwanzaa. Yeah, in fact, I wish I had pulled them. Anyway, it actually showed anything. But um okay. but, I mean, but it's not unusual. And the whole thing is, you know, wait, uh, there's more than one. They got the first Kwanzaa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's money to be made. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> but here's the thing: that is not that is not Ujama. That is not cooperative economics. At the core of that principle, the third principle of Kwanzaa, after unity, Umoja, after Kujitagalia, self-determination, after Ujima, collective work and responsibility, you got Ujima, cooperative economics. Cooperative economics does not mean black capitalism in the sense that I got money, so this is this is Ujima. No, collective. So they're gonna make Rugrats Kwanzaa books. There's gonna be a Hallmark movie. Uh there was a recent posting that showed Barack Obama said, see, Obama is an example of Imani. He had faith that he could be president. No. No. Kwanzaa comes out of a moment in the 1960s where there is a global revolt against oppression, whether it be hypercapitalism and the oppressed, whether it be colonialism all over the globe. Here in the United States, whether it be the human rights movement that has been going on since we were snatched, but then intensified in the 20th century, particularly the second half in the 1950s and 60s, that has been narrated by the social structure here in the United States as the so-called civil rights movement. Others have called it the long freedom movement. Uh, people will call it the liberation struggle, the black liberation struggle in the United States connected to those other ones. But out of that came a number of expressions of self-determination. And that doesn't mean that within those governance formations, who we are to each other, there weren't tensions. There weren't cleavages. There weren't real battles. There weren't all kinds of things. But the thing that held them all together was a sense that there is a purpose. We are fighting for the same thing, our complete human liberation. 
And as we achieve that, then we want that for others. But we want it for ourselves first because we've never had it here. We were brought into this criminal enterprise. I'm saying all that to say that the principles of Kwanzaa were born out of this determination that it's not about you as an individual. It's about you and me and everybody else forming relationships and being a collective. So I'm saying all that to say that, of course, there are market-driven Kwanzaa products now. And there are many people of African descent and others, but particularly of African descent, who are able now to embrace Kwanzaa and embrace those values very publicly because the market has found uh, material value in that. And they can cosplay this about something else, but it's really about the fact that you can't stop it, you see. So with that in mind, we then have to balance what good we can get out of that. So, I mean, I, I would ask you, I mean, this work in this work of recovery that we have undertaken on a day, the 31st of December, when we think about that principle of Kwanzaa, of creativity, at the core of that principle, in fact, let me just pull up, I'm sure, one of my many Kwanzaa books. And we'll talk a little bit about this in a moment, um, a little bit more in a moment. But I want to ask you, here we are, Kuumba to do as much as we can in the way that we can to leave our community more beautiful and beneficial than we inherited it. Now, the literal interpretation would be a physical community, but we're really talking much bigger than that. We're talking about our relationships, our community. How can we leave them more beautiful than what we inherited that? Will a Hallmark movie do that? Yeah, probably. Even if it's unintended. Why? Because somebody will see that, see these people in African clothes, and say it's the most natural thing in the world now will african clothes lead us to liberation no it's some people with the best african clothes in the world who are some of the worst oppressors of their own people in the world i mean joseph mobutu mobutu Sese seko that stooge who was implanted by the belgians and with the ascent of the un and with the united states of america shout out to john kennedy and blowback but uh mobutu Sese seko said this will no longer be the Congo. We're going to call it Zaire because he has something called, he, he advanced in the 1950s and 60s, particularly 60s after he had, had well, 60, 61, 62, after he eliminated Patrice Lumumba, called Authenticity. We'll be authentically African. He had his leopard skin hat. He had his staff. You know, he had his African-inspired dress and, you know, riff on that and was one of the most brutal anti-human dictators in the 20th century after the murder of Patrice Lumumba. Damn, Cook rose up to command in the army, Mobutu, Joseph Mobutu, Mobutu Sese Seko. He says, I'm not going to use Joseph anymore. I'm African. Okay, the cultural gloss ain't going to save us. Is it better to have a culture than not? Depends on what we're talking about. People now in the United States, for example, we talk about for the culture. I don't even know what that means. And I absolutely know what that means. It means nothing. And it also means something that can't be fully articulated. You just basically talk, it's almost like a demographic term. But Mobutu is a great example of someone who embraces this idea of African culture and then uses the culture as a weapon. Now, meanwhile, the Africans who are farthest away from this, particularly when we don't study and are not aware, there are many Africans around the world who protested that. John Clark, Carlos Moore, so many others, Maya Angelou, so many others went to the United Nations after Lumumba was assassinated in New York City and protested, got thrown out of the meetings, all this kind of stuff. Carlos Moore still tells those stories. But at any rate, Mobutu comes in 
And Zaire becomes the host country for, of course, the Ali Foreman fight, as we were talking about. Uh, with, you know, last week, talking about Ali Foreman fighting there, the Spinners and Bill Withers and Celia Cruz and, um, I mean, so many others, James Brown, B.B. King coming and performing there, you know, Ali Knox Foreman out. But the guy who made that possible is a straight dictator plant by the United States of America and by the former colonial power Belgium. All of them did that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it gets very complicated. And then, of course, somebody who's been here, we celebrate Ralph Bunch. And I'll end with this on this topic. Ralph Bunch goes in when Patrice Lumumba is in trouble because Lumumba, in, in that pan-Africanist move, Lumumba, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, Nande Zikiwe in Nigeria, and I'm only using these names as shorthands, which I think we should talk about in a moment, these questions of icons, what do individuals represent? They're trying to come together and overthrow oppression. Well, Eisenhower and then Kennedy and them, the United States, they want Lumumba on their side. On the other side, you got the Russians and the Chinese, they want Lumumba on their side. Lumumba's caught, and so the United Nations, which is a tool, was a tool then of the United States, still in this way, in many ways today, they try to call themselves negotiating. Ralph Bunch is sent, because remember, Ralph Bunch ends up being a negotiator, working with the UN. Ralph Bunch gets the Nobel Prize for negotiating the creation of what becomes the state of Israel. Not a proud moment if you look at what just happened a couple of days ago, Bibi Netanyahu and this right-wing government in Israel. But anyway, I'm saying all that. Ralph Bunch, who we in the United States of America as African people saw, Ralph Bunch is, you know, he's brilliant, but um, worked at Harry University, look, uh-huh. He shows up in Congo. You know what Lumumba tells him? Y'all need to send me somebody to negotiate with. I know the Negro don't have no power. If I see the Negro, you know, send me somebody. <laughs> I mean, it's it boggles the mind how close all of this is for us to study, to understand, so we see it again. We don't fall for the same trap. But we're doing it, right? So Yes, we're doing it. Yes. So, so people showed up and validated uh, Mobutu, right? Yes. You know, by showing up. That's by right. having the fight there, by, that's right. We, in, in our ignorance, you know, we think we're doing something very African to support Africa. That's right. We're actually supporting oppression, and we do it even now with how we support music and people in in our culture who are doing destructive things in our community. We support, and we we're out there at the courthouses, you know, fighting for their freedom with right. the hashtag. Even though we, yeah, I've been thinking. Okay. No, no, let's keep, let's keep going. And I'm loving it because as as we're talking, I'm looking in the chat. And uh, if y'all are watching this later on YouTube, I, we got key Swahili speakers like Nduku, who is helping to translate these key Swahili terms because the terms, some of the terms in Kwanzaa, all the terms key Swahili in terms of the principles, but some of them are more loosely translated than others. So this is, this is, and I'm talking about this in the context of where we're going and where we've been and where we're going as we go forward in this work. It is really the collective that is making meaning. So thank you for that. Uh, folks are dropping in uh, footnotes and extending on, yes, Lord, James Brown. Thank you. Thank you, C. Anthony. James Brown, Soul Power, live in Kinshasa, Zaire. Yeah, because you know that film, and he put the YouTube link in. So we see James Brown come out there with that belt buckle that says G-F-O-S, <laughs> Godfather of Soul, Soul Power. How could I forget? Miriam Makeba performed. I mean, all of that stuff's on tape. So y'all put, yep. Oh yeah, Ralph Bunch helped negotiate the formation of the state of Israel. That's why he got the Nobel Prize, which he said, I cannot accept this Nobel Prize by myself. It was a team.
But guess what? Everybody has the right to self-determination. Now, do you have the right to displace the people who were there before? It's a very good book called Black Power and Palestine that talks about that. And it's very, and we're going to talk about some of those things. So I'm bringing some, some of the other things for this morning. But this is, uh, Ralph would have stepped out of this if he knew where it was going. Cookie, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Because Ralph Bunch was one of those people, if you go back to his earlier days, a generation before when he was a young scholar, this man out of Detroit, then UCLA, comes work at Howard. He's considered one of the young radicals. There's a book called Along the Color, Born Along the Color Line, by a cat named Miller, that writes about Ralph Bunch and these cats when they go to the Amenia Conference. I won't get too deep into this, I won't go too far off on this, but actually, let me let me let me let me put this in the context of this conversation we've started today. Because really today, here we are, the last day of the so-called calendar year. And Prof, you've opened us up to have this conversation about community. What does it mean? About grace. How do we extend it? Who is we and how do we build? This is what we've been doing all along. And as we think about this vision coming forward in 2023, the momentum we have re really is so much anchored in strengthening and growing this collective by sharing and participating. That's why I paused and noted the chat for a moment. Um, and why, you know, on in the YouTube dimension of this particular effort, you know, I've been reading the uh, comments and now started to reply to comments because it is so rich. And we'll come back to that in a minute as well. But this notion of strengthening and, and growing a collective, this question of community, what does it mean? This question of building relationships. When we think about it in the context of just these things we've opened up with today, then when you look at people attempting to liberate themselves, we might have differences of opinion as to where that might look and what that might look like at any one given moment. And then over the arc of our lives, our opinions will change. So a Ralph Bunch who is rejected by, you know, one of the leaders of the African independence movement who was in that time prime minister of Congo, Patrice Lumumba, because Lumumba is desperate for attempting to maintain this autonomy and not get caught up in the emerging Cold War struggle. And he sees Bunch as representative of that. The same Ralph Bunch, who a few years before, had a little bit over a decade before, had helped negotiate the formation of the state now known as Israel, a very um, important moment in contemporary global history uh, with people who themselves have been persecuted and who are looking for a place where they will no longer be attacked, a completely legitimate idea, but one with its own fraught, with its own contradictions and tensions, Zionism in some places, settler colonialism in other places, displacing, and here's Bunch again in the center of this, arguing for self-determination, but also arguing for the common humanity that should not lead to the displacement of other people. And while Bunch negotiates that in 1947, Israel comes into existence. 20 years later, you got the Seven Day War and you got the entire Arab world and many other people against the idea that you're going to displace these people who are Palestinians. They were there. And technically, if you're looking at it as a linguistic formation, so-called Afro-Asian languages, Arabic and Hebrew share root Semitic. So when you say anti-Semitic, are you saying anti-Jewish? Because you you against those Arabs and you want to drive them into the sea. They want to drive you into the sea. Some people want to coexist, but this is a fraught mess. Ralph Bunch is there at the formation of that as these people who have been displaced as part, in part because they have been slaughtered 
in Germany. And they were not alone. They were the vast majority, but they were not alone. When you read Firpo Carr, F-I-R-P-O, Carr, C-A-R-R, no relation. But he wrote a book called Hitler's Black Victims. Uh, my friend and brother Clarence Luzane wrote a book on this subject. There were black people who were killed in the Holocaust. They were against black people. It was one black man in an interracial relationship, Ernest Everett Just, who won the Spingar Medal in the BACP, one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century, stem cell biologist. He got caught, when you read Kenneth Manning's book, Black Apollo of Science, you see that this is a black man from South Carolina, went to Dartmouth undergrad, had a PhD, taught at Howard for years, brilliant scientist, pioneer scientist, who was in Germany at the time and gets put in a concentration camp and escapes and gets out of Germany before he, before he is slaughtered. There's a whole group of people known collectively as the Roma, R-O-M-A. We know them because the slur that we were taught as children that we refer to them at often as gypsies. They were slaughtered. But there were a lot of people who were Jewish who were slaughtered by the millions. You know, One of them, well, let me not pause here because I'm not even going to bring uh, Santos of New York in. He'll come in a little bit later. Not Jew-ish, no, Jewish, Jews, slaughtered. And so looking for a homeland, you read Robert Wisebird's book, I'm pointing back here like I could pull the book now, African Zion, uh, you'll see there were many different places proposed for the place for, to settle these folk. But because the British had colonial fingers on Palestine and the, and the criminal enterprise known as Western colonialism, this several centuries at that time, they got a place they can put these people. In some people's mind, dump these people. These are not friends of Jewish people, but no problem. And the UN helps. And so this creates this animosity and this tension, which continues to this day. Ralph Bunch is in the middle of that. But a generation before, I think it was 1933, so 47, 37, 15 years, 14 years before, Bunch, a young political scientist, Emmett Dorsey, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, uh, so many others, Joel Spingarn invites these young people and some elders, James Weldon Johnson, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, others, to his uh, to his stately uh, retreat in Amenia, New York, the Amenia Conference. And no, no, no. Yeah, they had two Amenia Conference, second Amenia Conference. Anyway, to talk about race and problems and how we create better human relations. Now, mind you, W.E.B. Du Bois, a founder of the NAACP, and even now in this generation, we would say, well, colored people, we need to change that. Well, one of the reasons Du Bois suggested, Du Bois was, was the one who kind of led that conversation in terms of suggesting using colored people. Why do you use colored people instead of Negroes? He said, because colored people is the more inclusive term. Du Bois wasn't thinking colored people in terms of black Americans. Du Bois was thinking non-white people. See, Du Bois, in, at the beginning of the NAACP, he wasn't thinking about the United States by itself. He said, the world is majority non-white. This could be the National Association, which means you think U.S., for the advancement of, okay, Negro, mm -mm. let's say colored people. Why? I'm putting a seed in there for a later age. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But all these people come to a media. In 1932-33, Du Bois, 68, 78, 88, 98, 08, 18, 28, he's 65, 64 years old. Du Bois, February. February 23rd, 1868. So he's considered an old man. Bunch and them boys, they're younger. They are impatient. Bunch is, is deeply steeped in, very much aware of, and very sympathetic to many of the ideas that might be associated with the communists, certainly the socialists. 
and endorsing them. They coming up like, what the hell's going on, young feet, man? You old people moving too slow, man. The old man, they battling Dubois on this. A generation later, Bunch has been pulled into the criminal enterprise differently. And although he is a lifelong fighter for human rights, a lifelong, he gets pulled into the criminal enterprise of these Europeans and those they want to exploit, those they want to exist for something other than humanitarian reasons, and those they don't give a damn about. And so I agree with you. I think if he had looked later, he might have changed his attitude. So, yeah, I'm just looking at the chat a little bit. All right, so let's pause. Now that we've been in for about 50 minutes. How do we strengthen and grow? This collective sharing in particular that we have, we have built. And, and Prof having pioneered this having been the center and anchor for this. And for those of you who, you know, aren't part yet of the convening that we have in Narrative in Nubia, you know, it's, it's critical that we share this, that you understand that this is founded and grounded in sharing and participating. And and I don't mean, and I agree, and thank you all, because yeah, um, I see it. Um, Azakia and others, yeah, he does get pulled in. That doesn't mean he's naive. Because if you read, in fact, Bunch, there's a there's a shelf of books on Bunch. I, I like uh Charles Henry's book, Ralph Bunch. Um, is it American Negro or Other? So I forget the subtitle. Charles Henry, Charles B. Henry, my friend Charles Henry, used to be at Cal Berkeley for many years. Uh, I met him when he was uh president of the association, I'm sorry, the National Council for Black Studies. Um Brian Urquhart's book on Ralph Bunch. There's a lot of stuff on Bunch. And then Bunch wrote a lot. Uh, there's a there's a massive book which contains some of the memos that he wrote for the American Dilemma Project, Gunnar Murdoch's project. Ah, thank you. Thank you, Karen. Model Negro or American Other. Yes. It's a tension. When you read Bunch's own writing, the memos he wrote that informed um, Gunnar Murdoch's American Dilemma, the, no, an American dilemma that Murdoch put his name on, but it was a lot of black scholars involved in that. Bunch wrote hundreds of pages one summer at Howard while he was at Howard. And he wrote these memos on leadership in the black community. There've been several that are published and I wish I could put my hands on one. I usually keep a couple of those volumes close and I don't see anything on the shelf over there that would, I think I kind of know where probably one or two of them. One's, caught, one's on Ralph Bunch writing about the American Negro in the age of FDR. Another is um, um, a book that, talks about uh, one of the memos has been reduced to a smaller volume. I think Jonathan Scott Holloway edited that on Bunch and how he views Negro leadership. And then there's one that I kind of always keep close and boy, this would be the time I don't have it. Oh, look at that. Ha! Ralph Bunch got jokes. When is his birthday? This is a reprint because I actually have a copy of this, but I got that in storage. Um, Elaine Locke edited a, a series of books called the Bronze Books. They were all at Howard at the time. This is in the 30s. He did one on Negro and Art. Eric Williams, who was on faculty at the time, became the first prime minister, black prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, did one on Negro and Economics. Sterling Brown did one, the Bronze Books. And this is Ralph Bunch's book, the Bronze Booklet number four, A Worldview of Race by Ralph J. Bunch, Associate Professor of Political Science, Howard University. This is interesting. This is 1936. Look at him asking these questions. What is race? The device of race in world economic and political conflict. 
race and imperialism, race in the United States. Bunch is trying to theorize a concept of race that might contribute to solidarity politics and bust through these notions of white supremacy, white nationalism, and capitalism. It's a critique. It's all in there together. Now, this makes Bunch important, but if you never read it, if we don't study it, if we don't act on it, how important is it? What we're doing here, what we started now going on close to three years, be three years soon, is a weekly conversation now connected to this universe of governance formation that allows us to do two things, to tap into some of these things that ancestors have done before, strengthening those relationships, establishing them, unfortunately, in some places because we don't remember this stuff or we haven't been introduced to it, and displacing, elevating or centering or somehow deferring to any one individual, no matter how brilliant, Bunch, Du Bois, whoever, in favor of including them in a structure, in a formation, in a way of knowing that centers sharing and participating. Participating. Again, if you weren't in office hours this past Monday when we had the conversation around movement and memory, I'm sorry, around cultural meaning making, anchored by our reading Robert Spears Thompson, the first 45 pages of his exhibition catalog, African Art in Motion. You really missed something, but it's all recorded there. It's all the archive, including the chat, which is really, in many ways, the point. Everybody participating, coming in, dealing with this question of values. We'll come back to that if you want. And as we now look at the new year, uh, this Monday night, we will be grappling with the final conceptual category, movement and memory, that is anchored by, we have readings from uh, Vincent Harding, There is a River, and an interview Claudia Tate did with the great Tony K. Bambara, something we had read last year. We we're going to revisit in context of movement memory. We're ramping up this, this, this collective reimagining. And that's what allows us to build community. This will allow us, this allows us to have collective assessment, collective criticism, collective moments where we are able to restore. And prof something, I just want to drop this in in passing as I get to the to the next point. But when you have that. Then there's collective understanding. And out of that collective understanding, we can take collective action. And out of that collective action becomes the, establishing the kind of world we want to live in where things won't become normalized. Like, for example, and I'll just put this as a footnote, but since, you know, we shared this and talked about it and you were so upset about it, and I was too, uh, what happened to Wilma Pierce the other night <laughs> on Broadway? I think night for last, wasn't it? Or a couple nights ago. You know, Pierce is starring in Death of a Salesman on Broadway. And, you know, you know, at some point, a sister who was sitting in the front row with her husband, the sister gets up, comes back in for the next after intermission and gets in a shouting match and starts shouting at the, at the stage and responding. She had been doing it all night. Maybe she had had some drink, maybe not. The observers have said maybe, you know, who knows. Wendell Pierce does something that anybody, anybody in here who's an actor or actress knows you don't do. He broke stage. He had to literally stop the performance. House lights come up. He offers to give the couple their money back. He says, I'm sorry, but you know, I can't really disrupt. Ladies constantly screaming at the damn stage. And he's trying to manage it. He said, Yeah, I really don't have to go. But at that point, they didn't call the house, the police, you know, the security, whatever. They got to go. 
and she's screaming the whole way and the brother is screaming back we want our money back he said i'll give you money i will pay for your money get the petty get out of petty cash get these people their money back i mean but but he said and then he, and then he says i have waited too long for this people start clapping he said you have waited too long for this the question becomes and you asked this prof when we were talking about it what's the protocol why we act like that i don't know if you've ever any of y'all been to a broadway play where that happened not that they broke stage, but where people talking back to the uh, to the stage. I'm not talking about uh, Tyler Perry. Pat, Patty Lapone, you know, somebody had their phone off, but the Patty Lapone will will lay you out if you if you come to her Broadway. Oh <laughs> really? Yo, Patty Lapone is legendary. Yes. Thank you for filling that gap in my knowledge. I did not realize that because you know, going up to Tennessee State, W. Derry Cox and Devereaux Brady and them, but you never break stage, Lawrence James. It could be on fire in the audience. You keep going. But I'd never seen it before. Wow. So Patty Lapone is known for that. Good. Good to know. I know I, I didn't see them break stage, but when I saw Viola Davis and uh, Denzel Washington and Fences, you know, our people, we up in there watching Fences from a governance perspective. And when Viola Davis told Denzel Washington, you know, that baby that you had out of this relationship, you know, she can stay here. And she said, today, this baby has gained a mother. But you have lost a wife. Them Negroes in the audience. You tell them. I don't, I'm like, and I'm sitting there looking at Davis and Washington like, I know y'all want to say, will you Negroes please be quiet? But they got to they got to take that energy and recycle it. But this is the constant dialogue. It's one of the geniuses of, of August Wilson. You know, it's always, I remember when I saw um, Joe Turner's Come and Going on Broadway, the same uh, production of it that, um, uh, the Obamas attended a couple of days before that. We we sit up in there watching it, and you can always tell when they're African people in a play that's about African people because watching a play when it's African because because we laughing and getting mad at the right places. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, you ever been in one of them audiences where white people are laughing in the wrong places <laughs> and black people are laughing in the right places, and sometimes white people laugh in the right places after they hear black people. You're like so and so the ah ha ha white people. Oh. <laughs> It would take too long <laughs> to explain what's going on. But I'm saying this interactive part is very much part of our experience. Now the question becomes, particularly as we go into part two of this intro class, as we come here on the last day of the, of the year, and, and shout out to everybody, all, all the folks in East Africa, particularly the Ethiopians, whose Christmas is the oldest Christmas, um, who, uh, for whom last week was not Christmas Day, last Sunday was not Christmas Day, I think Christmas, and y'all help me in the chat. I, I think Christmas in the Ethiopian calendar would be in the Western calendar we have now, the Gregorian calendar, January the 7th. So <laughs> I think it's January the 7th. Because you always know you always know that it's not Christmas. So, yeah. And of course, New Year is where it's supposed to be. That would be the Ethiopian New Year's in September. Like the calendar is the way it was supposed to be, the original calendar. or the old. And it is January 7th. It's January 7th? Okay. So everybody, all the Ethiopians, all the uh, Habisha, all the uh, folks who go back to Gez, even before Amharic, all the folks from Gandhara and all the places, you know, you know, we'll we'll say Merry Christmas uh, next week <laughs> to you. But at any rate, um, I, I, I'm saying all this to say that in this context of as we're going on this global journey beginning in 2023, after we finish this coming up Monday night with. Um, the last conceptual category in our framework, which ends part two of our course, which is movement and memory. How did or do Africans remember any particular moment in time and space? We then move into part two. 
and somebody somebody on in the youtube side was asking in the comments you know about reading lists he said come on in the narrative we got all the bookstores together we got plenty of materials in terms of where to go and what but in part two of the afro uh, africana studies class we are reading several books the first of which of course in mid-january will be the coming the coming will help us answer the second framing question which is how did africans preserve and affirm their ways of life and use their identities as means to resist enslavement and of course, we're going to be joined by Anubian, um, one of the most prolific writers that we have. We're just a remarkable brother. Certainly one of my genius. He would reject that. But I'm telling you, this, this man helped shape my life along with many others. Brother Cedric, one of his sons, um, Dr. Daniel Black from Clark Atlanta University. We're reading his book, The Coming, and he's going to join us about midway through the month to have this conversation. Um, this work is improving all of us. It's certainly improving my practice as a teacher and other places and interaction with folk. I think all of us are drawing from this because all of us are contributing, which is where I want to go for this in terms of this story. What's going on in 2023? Well, we're facing a, a global structure, a social structure that is continuing to dissolve. It's continuing to reform itself. We don't know what it's going to look like. You got a guy like George Santos here in the United States. That's what's in the headlines in the United States of America. This fake person saying he was this, went to school here, had this money. Did his mama pass on uh, in, on January, uh, on uh, November uh, 11th, 2001 as a victim of the destruction at the World Trade Center? Or did she pass years later? Well, it's clear now that she didn't pass in 9-11, uh, 2001. So, I mean, all this kind of thing. But is he going to get kicked out of Congress? No, because the White Nationalist Party needs his vote. Kevin McCarthy needs his vote. Will Kevin McCarthy be the Speaker of the House? Well, maybe not. You know, then today we get the news that, you know, Cardinal Racklinger, now then known as Pope Benedict XVI, the first German Pope in almost 500 years, who then retired and passed it off, couldn't do it no more. Uh, he's, you know, he was John Paul II's right-hand man. You know, he's he, he made transition. Okay, all right, all right. Um, Bolanzaro. Those of us are said, you know, we, we need your wisdom on this, brother. If you can slip in Monday night, it might be good for you to come in and give us a little update down Brazil way because uh, Bolanzaro, that fascist, is uh, by all reports right now as we meet today with his brother, not his biological brother, his ideological brother. That would be Donald J. Trump. He got on a plane yesterday. Bolanzaro, the president of Brazil. By the way, this is how the Brazil government works, right? When the new president comes in, the old president's supposed to exchange. They got a sash, you know, the, the symbol of government that you pass over. Well, they got to figure out now who's going to give the sash because the vice president of Brazil now is the acting president of Brazil because that's what happens whenever the president leaves the country. Jar Balanzaro got on a plane yesterday headed for Florida. Landed in Orlando, probably at Miralago as we speak. He not going to give that sash to Lula da Silva. Well, you know what? You can go to hell and stay. No problem. You could, and then almost in tears, the reports are, he was saying, I couldn't find a legal way to to, to, to stay in power. Right. Your boy tried. So now you're going to go eat cheap steak and do whatever the hell else y'all do down in Miralago with your friend Donald Trump. Now, you know, Juan Guaido in Venezuela. Oh, that comic, that buffoon is finally out. Because remember, the United States government been trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government for years. Juan Guaido, who then had shoes thrown at him, kicked in the behind, can't show his face in public. Well, Juan Guaido, who was the leader of the opposition in the uh, 
Brazilian, I'm sorry, in the Venezuelan legislature who was coming here to the United States all the time, who the United States government recognized as the legitimate president of Venezuela. Ain't nobody vote for Juan Guaido. I mean, this country will just overthrow your stuff and then pump you full of other stories. We be talking about other stuff. Anyway, Guaido's out because in the Brazilian legislature, they voted to dissolve that opposition movement. Guaido pleaded with them, well, just switch me out then. Put somebody else. We got to have the opposition movement. Nope. United States leaning on them. No, Guaido. <laughs> no, no, you go. Hee-haw. Goodbye. Hee-haw, haw-haw. I say that because his ears be sticking out. Anyway, Guaido is gone. Now, what else is going on? In the beginning of 2023, we're going into 2023 seeing, again, this notion of the, 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 the disillusion of this order. All these African leaders were brought to Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. We talked about that. And, you know, they're trying to figure out, United States, how they can insert themselves in Africa more strong, you know, more virulently. Zimbabwe wasn't banned. Hmm. Maybe leaning on Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe just announced that they are keeping their lithium at home. Why is that important? Well, we know lithium is what you use for these electric batteries. And Zim has enough lithium to supply 20% of the world's lithium needs. That's major. They say, well, you know what? Instead of shipping this, to, and, and we're going to stop this artisanal digging. They call it artisanal, but don't think about it like you went to the boutique grocery store and bought some artisanal foods. No, artisanal in the sense of you got mining companies, illegal people paying people to dig up lithium and sneak it out the country. Zim saying, no, the government said we're going to crack down on that. We're going to keep the lithium at home, and we need to build some battery factories. Oh, shit. Now, guess who also said, huh, Nigeria? Here we go with them damn Nigerians. See, Nigeria, when the giant of Africa gets its act together, the whole thing going to change. Now, you know, it's no accident they had on them people over here. It's no accident that, that Blinken and them was signing deals trying to get these precious metals out of Zambia. You know, there's no, and, and Angola. There's no accident. Why? Zimbabwe, who they always have tried to isolate. And as John Clark said, in some stories, it ain't no good guys. Robert Mugabe or Uncle Bob, as the students used to call him, we would go to South Africa at the University of Cape Town and University of Western Cape and sit around with students from all over Southern Africa. And the Zim students were like, I know he's a hero to y'all, but y'all too far away from it. He did some great things. And now he done gone left. Again, people over generations doing different things. But United States, England, they always want to isolate Zimbabwe. Okay, well, Zim said, we keeping our lithium. Oh, my God. And if they keep theirs, yes. Yes, thank you. Um, we've got all of this going on at the same time that as we enter 2023, we've seen, and let's pause here for a minute. Let's take a couple of minutes, Prof, because since last January, as we kind of wind this up, we saw a lot of people make transition. Here at the end, there's some names we're going to mention here. It kind of helps us come back to our home. But we talked this year with City Poitier, uh, Cicely Tyson. Seems like an eternity ago, doesn't it? But all that was this year, right? More recently, of course, Tom Bell. We talked about Tom Bell, uh, Lamont Dozier before. Um, did you ever cross paths with Barbara Walters? No. No, I, I did not. I know I remember, and I got her, it's probably in storage too, though. That's one of the ones I probably would have taken in storage, her memoir. Yeah, I can't, and I can't say that she was an inspiration to me. Yeah, could you say a little bit something more about that? Because see, I, again, I'm really I, I remember reading a few pages in her autobiography where she talks about that affair she had with Edmund Brooke, Senator Brooke from Massachusetts. Yeah. But why wouldn't she inspiration for you? I don't know. I just I never uh I maybe I don't know. 
if I'm being honest, uh, if I'm being honest, I didn't see myself in her mm -hmm. style-wise. And, you know, I know she was a journalist. She had some great, there's some great interviews. Sean Connery admitting that he liked to slap women uh, if they get out of line. Jesus. Talk about grace. Talk about oh, grace. I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> no, no, nobody saw that coming. James Bond, Scotsman, sex yeah. with women, every movie, and oh, you like to slap women around? Yeah, nobody saw that coming. If they, if they, if they deserve it, you know. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, and I know she had this uh, interview with Yasser Arafat that was very uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I was never really impressed with Barbara Walls, and there are those who cape for her. You know, we see some of the black people. Okay, so that's interesting. You say, but no, she seemed kind of pedestrian to me. She certainly can't be compared to Charlotte Bass or Mal Good. I mean, when we gonna talk about our journalists? <laughs> like you say, even the Robinson. We don't uh, know them though. You know, and even you know, um, we we don't know them enough to talk about them. Do you know what I'm point. saying? So this is what we're doing here. You that's know, right. kind of remembering and reminding people. Uh, right. You know, that journey you took us on last week. I'm like, I, I know all of the songs and didn't know the man, you know, so it's important, right? So. And by the way, again, collective work, collective work, y'all. Look, when we talked about Tom, uh, Tom Bell last week and went into the uh, into the uh, the chat and then went into YouTube on the comments, uh, brother shared that that he used to stay with Linda Creed, Tom Bell's writing partner, one of his writing partners who wrote so many of the the uh, the great hits. And when <laughs> when the brother said, oh, yeah, I, I used to stay where she used to pick me up at the school and the music would all be in, all in the house. And I'm thinking, wow, this is how we do the collective work. See, collective work is not going to be about individual scholars, because, again, I mean, I, I read all those books, but I don't trust the books. I don't trust the books because the books are based on narratives and narratives are important, but narratives are not the central thing. And I completely left out. And there were so many other things could have mentioned. But, you know, as I mentioned on Monday night, we were talking. They came to Linda Creed, Tom Bell's writing partner, who made transition at 37 years old. And they went to Linda Creed like, you know, we want you to write a, um, a song for this movie. And Tom Bell and Linda Creed told, I mean... We, you know, break up to make up. That's all we do. That's Tom Bell and Linda Cree. Um, I'd like to one day be the owner of the first house on the moon. And you hear those congas. That's Tom Bell and Linda Cree. The stylistics, of course. Um, um. And then Linda Creed and Tom Bell wrote one of my favorite Phyllis Hyman's. Oh, friend, it's so nice to have you with me again. And it doesn't matter where you have been. Yeah, that's, man, old friend. Phyllis Hyman, what a talent. But they came to Linda Creed and said, we want, to, want you to write this song for the movies for this movie that we're doing based on a uh, on an autobiography that actually was acquired by Toni Morrison when she was editor at Random House uh, called The Greatest. It was Muhammad Ali. And uh, Richard Durham actually ghost wrote that. Richard Durham, uh, who's a very important 
Uh, I'm looking around. I know I got a copy of the grades around here, but Richard Durham, there are a couple of as good well he, he destination freedom was a radio series he did durham was an important uh writer an important writer for radio and broadcast um my friend sonia williams who was on faculty at Howard university did a uh, word warrior is the name of the book she did on richard durham but you not go already also get durham's book where he you see a lot of the scripts that he did he did all these radio plays on famous and important black people back in the 1940s and 50s. Very important, Richard Durham. Some people may, may be aware of the name. Again, I say these names not only to make us aware, but to also invite us to this work, which I'm saying is the center of our work, which is the collective work, because it's really in the comments, it's really in the, the conversations that we see people adding to this. But at any rate, Linda Creed said, okay. So what does she do? Within a day, she writes the lyrics. I believe the children of the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. Let the children's laughter remind us how we use to be i mean linda creed wrote the greatest it's tom bell's writing partner didn't make it to 40 years old 37 years old you know disease took her cancer took her i'm saying i have to say that you know these things were brought up in the comments i said yeah 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 that's right that's right that's right collectively we recovered this memory and it's and it's very important for us to do that the, the greatest love of all and it seems to me that there's almost, there's not always a story, but it, seem, it only seems like there's always a story of African people somewhere behind so many things we know. It's funny, uh, Prof, and, and I want to keep going on what we, we in, in, in this, in this uh, valence we're talking about. Um, <laughs> oh, man, there's so many. When you said Sean Connery, it made me think James Bond. I think about James Bond. I think about the, the, the scores for James Bond, the most famous theme in the history of movies, right? When you hear, da-da. You know that score. That's the James Bond theme, right? Uh, and remember that time, was well, a couple years ago, when I showed you all the uh, James Bond novels. Then you'd be like, "What are you doing with those?" I said, "Well, I collected, I collect those too, right?" Because he, that guy, was living in Jamaica. He had a place in Jamaica, right? Um, Golden Eye, I think, because they named one of the movies for his. Yeah, it is Golden Eye. Ian Fleming, yes, Ian Fleming, right? And so it's funny because. In Live and Let Die, of course, Roger Moore played James Bond. And I'll just do this one quickly because it just came to mind when you said Sean kind of made me think about that. And I was thinking about all the, the songs we didn't mention. Um, Paul McCartney wrote the song Live and Let Die. Remember, that was the one where Yafet Kato played the voodoo king or whatever, Mr. Big, whatever. And then in New York, he was the drug dealer. All these damn stereotypes in these James Bond movies. And so there's actually a documentary on the songs of Bond. And one of the guys tells the story that uh, Paul McCartney who, of course, Paul McCartney and Wings recorded that album, not with Live and Let Die on it, but with, um, with, uh, come on, son. Anyway, it'll come to me in a minute. Band on the Run. That was recorded in Nigeria. It's a story for another day. Because you hear him got all this African influence. But in Live and Let Die, when you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say, live and let live, 
You know you did, you know you did, you know you did. But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry, then the minor key, mm-mm-mm, then live and let die. Boom, then Tiffany's come in, right? In the middle of that, they got a break that's really reggae break. What does it matter to ya? If you got a job to do, you got to do it well. And you hear the kind of reggae. Doo, 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 doo. You got to give the other fella hell. Well, we finished the song, gave it to the producers, and they said, okay, now who are we going to get to sing this song? Um, They suggested, was it Thelma Houston? I know they suggested Aretha Franklin. They said, no, if you don't have if you don't have Paul McCartney singing Live and Let Die, then you don't get the song. That's how Paul McCartney ended up singing Live and Let Die. <laughs> they was gonna have Aretha Franklin said, I don't I'm trying to imagine Aretha Franklin singing that song. Anyway, back to our regular as we were talking. She would have murdered it. Wait, that? She would have murdered it the way she did the Pavarotti opera. I mean, can you imagine that? Gosh, can you imagine? I'm trying to imagine. When you were young and your heart was Woo! You used to say, live and let live. She would have took that chorus out, unless her sister then were back there backing her up. In this ever-changing world in which you live in, made you give and let, give in and cry. Live and let die. She would have been playing a piano on it. Mm. Yeah. Shit, that might have been a bad man set something on fire if Rita Franklin had sang that. Right. Paul McCartney's still walking the earth. But anyway, so there's so many people who, <laughs> who, made, who made transition this year. And I just want to spend a little time as we kind of close today and mention a few of the books that I thought were just good this year as we think about what we're going to do in 2023 and this continuing work. A few of them. Uh, and I'm mentioning them in this context. Again, strengthening and growing the collective sharing and participating that we're doing. Fill, not just filling in gaps, but literally re-anchoring, anchoring the way we should be thinking about our work. When we think about how we do things in this work of recovery, we have to remember that our work is collective work. And there are individuals who are incredibly important in that work because everybody has different talents and gifts, but only together can we progress. And we live in a society which tries to curate Black people. And I will probably at some point watch the Coach Prime documentary. And, you know, God bless Deion Sanders and all the lives he's impacted and changed. And then we get the news this week that Ed Reed is going to be the head football coach at Bethune-Cookman. And every bit the player at safety that Deion Sanders was at cornerback. And again, continuing to shine a spotlight in terms of a social structure gaze and those Negroes who are basically firmly anchored in the social structure on something that governance formations among African people in the United States are well aware of, which is the culture and nature of historically black colleges. And I want to pause here to lift the name of a brother who just made transition, another iconic figure who is all too little known, the great Bobby L. Lovett. Bobby Lovett from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, went to Booker T. High, Washington High School in, DC, in, in Memphis, and is a graduate of Arkansas A&M State College. 
University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. Those of you know UAPB. Shout out again to Swack. Um, he taught school, public school, Memphis public schools, and he spent over three decades, nearly four decades on the faculty of Tennessee State University. He was one of my teachers. Taught my brother, taught my sister. He became the dean of the College of Washington Sciences. He made transition last week. His ritual was on the 30th of December. Uh, I'm able to go to Nashville, but I got a chance to watch. Bobby Lovett, one of the most important memory keepers we have, particularly when it comes to Black folk and, and, and historically Black colleges and universities. Lovett wrote a history of African-Americans in Nashville, Tennessee. He wrote several books uh, in that vein. Also wrote about the R.H. Boyd, uh, R.H. Boyd and the Boyd family and the Boyd, Boyd Company. Those of you who know about black publishing, you know the name of Boyd. Uh, that would be the Baptist literature. That would be the Sunday school books. If you at a black school, a black church and you got black Sunday school books, then you know the name Boyd because that the Baptist publishing house, if you Baptist, the Baptist publishing house, the hymnals, the Sunday school books, that was all published in Nashville. The boy family still going strong. Bobby uh, Lovett was on the board, actually, of Citizens Bank, another independent Black-owned bank founded by the Boyds, R.H. Boyd. Um, shout out to the Boyd family. Um, but here are two books I want to mention with, with Professor Lovett, because this is a name we should all know. I've mentioned this one before, but I'll show it to you again. This is his uh, 2011 book, Bobby Lovett. America's Historically Black Colleges and Universities. There's been a lot written about HBCUs recently and a lot of good information. All of those books, put them over there. You'll get them, send them, but start with this one if you want to know about HBCUs because prior to this book, there really wasn't a single book that covered this. He goes back to 1837 with the Institute for Colored Youth, which became Cheney. And um, <laughs> the epigraph that frames the book is from Pushkin, Alexander Pushkin, since we've been talking about Russia. With wearied hope, we have been waiting the moment of our sacred freedom. And he dedicates the book to all those who helped, who gave me help along the way, especially my children, grandchildren, wife, and other family members who have continuously encouraged me. His brother spoke at the funeral, his children too. Um, but Bobby loved it. Ashe, this brother right here. I love this brother. He helped, you know. As we talk about, know him, know me. These, these are these are the HBCU master teachers. And he, let me just, I should mention one other thing. And this is, you know, in, in the vein of what happens at HBCUs. Dr. Lovett says, um, he says, um, it started the, it st he started this book in 2004, the Educational Testing Service in Princeton, New Jersey. They were having a conversation and they had a project, ETS had founded, to develop presentations showing the valuable contributions of the historically black colleges and universities. He was part of a three-person team with Beverly Guy Sheftal, our sister Beverly Guy Sheftal, who's at Spelman, and Howard Simmons at Morgan State. So they put together to put together a 20-page historical narrative on HBCUs. This is 2004. This is not ancient history. He did, he did the survey. He said there's, there was no single narrative history of HBCUs. So Bobby Lovett then decided he's going to write one. This is what he says. He says, um, most social science researchers especially at HBCUs, must conduct research and write with little or no funding or reduction in class load. Faculties at HBCUs carry heavy teaching loads and usually work without graduate assistance. Nonetheless, to be good teachers, they must create, organize, write, and publish new information. He did it all. He was a teacher. He was an administrator. He's a scholar who, who published books. Get this book. And I'm going to come back to that theme in a minute in terms of what happens, because you have a lot of people who have time, particularly now, 
they get subsidized, they get these foundation grants, and, and, and they say, we're going to write the definitive history. No. I trust something from somebody who was there, who lived it, who talks about it, who writes it, who puts it on, because the important, now narratives are very important. Richard Rhoda, a white dude who is retired, used to be the head of the Tennessee Higher Education Commission, who when I knew him as an undergraduate at Tennessee State, was a uh, administrator at Tennessee State, and we fought him tooth and nail, this white man. We didn't trust no white people. Um, and because uh, we said, you're here to try to turn Tennessee State into a white school. Rhoda spoke at Lovett's funeral the other day, yesterday. And he said that he quoted Lydia Paul Green, who had an article in last week's New York Times talking about the January 6th commission. And I was going to shout out to Lynn Cheney for protecting her friend, Jenny Thomas. Now, I think Lynn Cheney is a hero. I know we don't, but somebody watching this does. You should put that aside. She tried to save her friend. But uh, she can't save her friend's country, though, or hers either. That's a story for another day. Maybe a soon day, maybe 2023. But uh, Rhoda, quoting Lydia Paul Green, writing about January the 6th said, it's important to tell the story of what happened because if you don't tell stories, we don't get understanding. And Paul Green is making this point, and I agree with Paul Green. Paul Green's point was, if you just have facts, if you just have data, if you just have information, people don't draw meaning from that without narrative. You got to tell a story. Bobby Lovett, I trust Bobby Lovett to tell the story of HBCUs. I trust him before I trust any graduate student or brilliant young scholar who don't know nothing about HBCUs, who has gone through the archives and is assembled and this data is helping them understand and they are looking at the subaltern nature of uh, and how this HBCU subvert the conventional notions of American whatever. Give me Bobby Lovett. In fact, give me Bobby Lovett on the school I graduated from. This is a book he published the following year, A Touch of Greatness, A History of Tennessee State University, Bobby L. Lovett. The great Bobby Love. Here he is with that black man look. Yoruba. What y'all call it? Your Yoruba speakers. It tutu. Coolness. We talked about that Monday night. Look at Bobby Love. That's the man, right? That's a Memphis Negro right there. <laughs> that look. Oh, man. I love Dr. Love. I shall. I shall. But anyway, I'm bringing that up because who frames the narrative gets to shape how we see things. And that's where I want to spend the last few minutes today. Here we are in the season of Kwanzaa. The outsized contribution of Malana Karinga really can't be understated, overstated. Professor Hunter, I was, I was having this conversation the other night with uh, Reba Kelsey, Dr. Kelsey, one of my friends at Morehouse School of Medicine. We were talking about this and I asked, I said, Reba, can you think of another person of African descent? And I'm going to ask y'all this too. And I ask you, Prof. Any person of Africanness, any single person who has had more influence on the behavior of other human beings when it comes to doing something deliberately for Black people that everybody else is doing deliberately for Black people in the United States. Is there anybody more influential than, than Karinga. Can y'all think of one? Let me look in the chat. I'm going to look in, the, when we post this, we're going to look in the comments as well. Anybody? Yeah, I don't know about them Memphis old heads. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you, CL. Shaka. Mm -mm, don't do it. Don't do it. Shaka. Shaka, <laughs> get out of my head. Get out of my head, Shaka Khan. With that African name you got from the Panthers. We're going to talk about Shaka because she got a lot more years to be here. Can you think of another? Define, define do for. 
In other words, Kwanzaa is driven by these principles. It's in Guzo Saba, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, there are a lot of books on it. I mean, Karinga himself has written several books. This is the book he did for the post office, uh, Kwanzaa celebrate when they did the unveiling of the Kwanzaa stamp. Oh, by the way, I was at the post office on Thursday, and I love going to the post office because the sisters and brothers work at the post office. You know, black people be at the post office, and and the sister was saying, "Look now, you better get these stamps now because post office going up on on postage uh, at the beginning of the year, going up three cents." I said, "Okay," so I bought a bunch of Kwanzaa. Forever stamps. The sister just designed a new Kwanzaa stamp, so it's not the one we have here. And so, anyway, and Ammonia Lewis was the African American heritage stamp for this year. I think John Lewis is next year. Um, this is actually this is Keith Mays's book, Kwanzaa: Black Power and the Making of the African American Holiday Tradition. An excellent book. Uh, a lot of good information in here. Um, he drives it into the ditch, as far as I'm concerned, with the conclusion where he then says, and "Let me just read this to be honest with your brother." I mean, I, I don't, I don't see how he gets there, but I, I do understand why he would say this. He says, um, "What is appealing about these observances?" He talks about Kwanzaa, Martin Luther King Day, and Black History Month, and has fostered there. There's, there's the other person. I'll come back to it now. And has fostered their endurance is that there is their import beyond the original holiday audience, their capacity to speak to multiple audiences, their connection with broad-based social movements, and their association with American progress. And he starts talking about how Kwanzaa is celebrated by everybody. Every group has uh, these values. He says every group that... Come on, bro. <laughs> so what I mean... I mean, I ain't mad at him. I understand. You really... I mean, I understand when you don't think you can win. You start trying to negotiate a deal. Kwanzaa is for everybody. The rug rats. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay, what part of... So what do you do with black folk? Because um, I wasn't raised with Kwanzaa. Neither was um... Yeah. That, well, I mean, I was and I wasn't, which is what yeah, we were doing right. right. Yeah. You know, I didn't like, we didn't like candles in our homes. We had a Christmas tree and all of the yeah. other things. But everyday Kwanzaa has become like a mantra on my shelf because the principles are things that if we, you know, we speak it into existence, it, it is powerful. We all yes. hold true to them. So are you talking about this philosophically or yes. actually? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. The name that popped in my mind as I'm looking at Maze might be Carter G. Woodson. Mm, yes. Would be yes. Carter. Would yes. Be, but but if we think about Woodson, of course, Woodson lays the foundation for Karinga. And by Woodson, I don't mean Carter Woodson alone. I mean the people with him and around him. Mary Bethune, everybody, Charles Wesley, uh, uh, Nanny Helen Burroughs here in D.C. I'm talking about all the people, all of the chapters of the Association for the Study of then Negro Life and History, all of that. When I'm talking about Karinga, I'm not talking just about Karinga. Right. Uh, they, they tried to trash uh, Kamala Harris again. Talking about she was celebrating Kwanzaa. She's in there with her husband, giving a happy Kwanzaa message, and here come the haters. You weren't at Kwanzaa. You was too young. Okay, everybody, your mouths, get their little needle, and sew them shut! Here's the problem. Kamala Harris, born 1965. Well, 64. Right? Kwanzaa, first Kwanzaa celebration, 1965. She, she wasn't it. Okay. Here's a name, M-A-K-I-Y-N-A, Queen Mother Makina, Sebeko Kwate, Sebeko, S-I-B-E-K-O, Kwate, K-O-U-A-T-E. She, lifelong resident of the Bay Area, Oakland, she's known as the Queen Mother of Kwanzaa. She made transition in 19, uh, 2017, 90 years old. She traveled to 
South LA and Southern LA and then Korean came up and they went back for Korean gave her a mimeographed uh, uh, kind of copy of what they had developed around this question of Kwanzaa with just one A. She is the one who spread uh, her birth name was uh, uh, Harriet, Harriet Smith, Harriet Edith Smith. She is the one who pulled together the Kwanzaa Collective in the Bay Area. She's the one who, along with them, started spreading Kwanzaa up and down the West Coast and then traveled all over the country. Mays does a good job of documenting this. He actually talked with her. Uh, in fact, we talk about the archive. I'm sure there'll be more people writing definitive histories of Kwanzaa because uh, I was looking at the exhibition catalog the other day, the Swan Exhibition Catalog in 2019. Her papers, about 17 boxes of her papers were bought for 13000 about almost $14,000. And so I don't know whether they at Emory or one of these other archives where they collect our history. But the point is, we are the history. We got to tell these stories. So if you don't know that name, Queen Mother Makina, please look her up because it's not just Karinga. Karinga, however, has this outsized influence. So to answer your question, how I'm defining it, I'm saying, are there things we do now as black people, as a we, regardless of how they spill over into other places? Macy's, the post office, or the Rugrats, or Hallmark, wherever they spill, you can't get rid of that black candle, Umoja. And as Keith Mays says, everyone has these values, and I agree. Everyone has these values. To strive for and maintain unity in the family, community, nation, and race. Everybody has these values. Marjorie Taylor Greene has these values. Keith, I agree with you, Dr. Mays. Uh, Mays. Um, she practiced them with George Santos and then when she was at that uh, party the other night where the white nationalists were and George Santos, the liar, and Marjorie Taylor Greene was there. And yeah, yeah, That would be race, right? Man, come on, brother. I understand you got to get the book published, but and I ain't mad at you. Believe me, this is one of the reasons why I'm so deeply grateful that we have this black space where we can deal with complicated questions and contradictions and interact with each other without trying to plead for our humanity and putting a line in that don't make no sense while I'm writing it. But I got to get this past the reviewers. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that influence, you can't get rid of that black candle. You can't get rid of the red or green candle. You can't get rid of the meaning. Black for the people, red for struggle, the blood, the collection, green for prosperity, the future, all that. Yeah, that's us. That black candle is not going to be a white candle, not going to be a beige candle, not going to be all different colors in one candle. going to be a black candle. We all do that together. Habari Ghani, Umoja, Kujichagalia, Ujima, Ujama, Kuumba, Nia, Imani. Whoa, what is it? What's that? Kiswahili, not Spanish. You can't translate it. You could, but it would lose its meaning. Why? This is a black ass holiday. And it ain't black American. It's just a made-up holiday. Name one is not. Come on now. Let's not dance. That dance. That's just foolish. What you're really saying is we can't do nothing to ourselves. We got to police ourselves. No. And then the critics, you know, the whole critic, the whole critical response to Kwanzaa thing is very interesting because when they start talking and they say, well, you know, Alana Karinga was a very important, you know, I, I, because you still dragging trees in your house and putting ornaments on them and then put a manger underneath it and then hung some stockings on it and then waiting for this home invasion man. so we don't we, we don't really want to examine these rituals too closely now do we another brother's birthday who just uh in fact his birthday today yosef antonio alfredo benyakinen the avenger as i like to call him i mentioned last week that i'd mentioned him he's a couple of his books Black Man of the Nile and his family, self-published. Is that cardboard? Yeah, Dr. Ben. Also, the Black Man's Religion and Extracts and Comments from the Holy Black Bible. See, Ben Yakinen would be hell 
on these major Western religions. He wrote a whole a massive book called African Origins of the Major Western Religions. Now, Dr. Ben ain't everybody ain't for everybody's taste. If you want to get a couple of smaller little books, here are a couple. One published actually by our brother Paul Coates, Black Classic Press, a chronology of the Bible, challenge to the standard version, Yosef Ben Yakinin. Uh, here's another one that uh is He's talking about the attack on black people for being anti-Semitic. Now, the man was born a Jew. He Jewish. So he wrote this book, Welcome Back Home, Black Anti-Semite Jew, the black Jew outside the door. Now, the man could be a rough ride, but I tell you what, here he is. Here's a picture of him with uh, Leonard Jeffries. A uh, shout out to Dr. Jeffries and Mama Roslyn. Dr. Jeffries just went underwent uh, a procedure. He's recovering now. Shout out to Leonard Jeffries um, and John Henry Clark. Of course, who was born January 1st, his birthday's tomorrow, and the great Yosef Ben Yakin and his brother, uh, who this is from the Amsterdam News, where black killer and white victim lovers. <laughs> Ben's style, Ben would put pictures in his books, and he would put he went to Egypt more than anybody. He was the first one to really go African from the diaspora to go and go many times. He would he 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 wrote books in ways his 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 fashion, and me and Paul have had this conversation. Now that's why I love talking to Paul. Paul, talk about a generous brother. He would, you know, he would draw his own maps and he kept a, uh, he would kept a, he kept a, uh, a portfolio with him. Anytime you see Dr. Ben, one time we were in Cincinnati one time, I said, Dr. Ben, what you doing? He was sitting with Dr. Clark. He writing. If he not talking, he writing. He's somewhere studying. He said he had a camera he'd take with him. You run into Dr. Ben in the Egyptian museum. Ben, was, <laughs> ben, ben, but anyway, I'm saying all that to say that when we start thinking about this question of individuals contributing, when you see a Karenga and, uh, you're seeing a man who is brilliant, very influential, the at the center of creating and a creator in terms of this kind of ability to synthesize and then rearticulate and connect. A philosophy, Kawaida, a set of principles in Guzo Saba, a ritual, Kwanzaa, that has now, because it couldn't be stopped, overflowed the boundaries of the original uh communities it was anchored with this is a this is a second edition of a book he wrote called the african-american holiday of kwanzaa karinga talks about it overflowing the boundaries here's picture of him when he was a lot younger he published this himself of course university of saint Croix press but i'm saying i have to say that um i think about people of influence people now lighting kwanzaa candles at least saying happy kwanzaa at least not in public saying nothing crazy to nobody face about kwanzaa the president of the united states saying happy kwanzaa Maybe Woodson and Black History Month, but even Black History Month doesn't have this anchoring way of knowing that is anchored in a governance formation that has a very deliberate near purpose of collective Black liberation. Black History Month, know your past, know your history, be proud. Kwanzaa and Guzo Saba, Kawaida, let's move collectively together, grounded in the best of our memory and moving forward by innovating based in that grounding of memory. Well, that's implied in Black History Month. Yeah, but it ain't explicitly stated. You can't light them Kwanzaa candles without saying that. Keith Mays notwithstanding. You understand? But who gets to tell the story? Oh, wow. Wow, Detore, your first trip to Africa was with Dr. Ben. It's going to be a lot of people like that. Ben Yakinen was no joke. He did not bite his tongue. No question. All right. Where am I going with this as we kind of wrap? Thinking about coming up into the new year. Well, when we think about who gets to tell this story, this is where the battle is. This is one of the biggest battles. And this is the battle we're going to win. 
And this is the battle that we have been winning in this space. And we are now getting stronger and stronger. And as Nubia grows and we have these convenings, we continue these convenings. The thing that really blows me away is how powerfully we have really begun to empty our collective memory. Even now in the chat, looking at this, in collective sharing and participating. No one individual gets to tell the story. Karinga couldn't tell the story by itself. Queen Mother Makina, Amiri Baraka. The story of Kwanzaa is the story of black school teachers in the 70s and 80s, taking these into the public schools all over the United States of America. The story of Kwanzaa is in West Africa and East Africa and in the Caribbean and in Latin America where Kwanzaa began to be practiced. The story of Kwanzaa way bigger than Melana Karinga now, to the point where Karinga is still alive, still around, still doing, gives his weekly uh, daily Kwanzaa message, has been doing it every day, did the annual founder statement, and most people don't are not aware of it. You should listen to those things and think about those things, but understand that it's way bigger than that now. Hell, Hallmark and the Rugrats dealing with Kwanzaa. So I don't know of any one person, perhaps Woodson, and I, and I want to you know, ask if anybody, let me see if anybody put any other names in the chat. I'm not talking about people who had great songs. I'm not talking about cultural icons. I'm talking about somebody who, out of their mind and out of their gift, contributed as part of sharing and participating a framework that is so impactful that people who wish harm on black people can't come out their mouth with anything other than happy Kwanzaa now. It's like a virus, a liberation, a potentially liberating virus. Now, who gets to tell that story? Well, Karinga might. Uh, Malefi Asante, his friend, wrote a book called Malana Karinga, an intellectual portrait. That is a, a great summary of many of Dr. Karinga's ideas, also deeply flawed in some in some ways. As it because but but the but the challenge is Dr. Asante, who I learned a great deal from, I went to Temple University because I'm a lefty Asante. Dr. Asante is telling a story from his perspective about his friend, and he himself is a towering intellect. And this question of Afrocentricity, very important. That's a narrative. Lydia Paul Green says, facts don't mean nothing until you put them in a story and that's what attracts people. Well, guess what? What we're doing here, we are using these iconic figures. We are using these outsized figures and what they represent to bring ourselves in community and then share and participate in telling our story together. And we're not doing it under a social structure where we got to ask for approval or change a sentence to get somebody to approve it. No, this is the power of what we're doing. So when we think about that work of recovery, that organic work of recovery, we know that there are individuals who did that work. Many of them are not as well known. Um, this is a great little book called Against the Odds, Scholars Who Challenge Racism in the 20th Century. I like this book because it's interviews with people and first-person testimony by some of these people against the odds. This is uh, Ben Bowser and Louis Kushnick's book. Uh, there are people in here, for example, like John Henry Clark, of course. But chapter one, John Glover Jackson, we'll talk about it. He's another one we should know. John G. Jackson. I talk about John J. Frank Snowden's in here. John Ho Franklin, of course, birthday coming. St. Clair Drake. These are some of the names. But it's a good kind of testament to people who did a lot of this work and didn't get a lot of attention but we now have this objective this is i've been saying this all along we've been talking about it all along but let's now going in 2023 and we saw a preview of it monday night in office hours as folk were contributing their own perspectives on cultural meaning making we're going to see it again monday night we start talking about movement and memory we all have 
as you say, Prof, bricks to bring, we all have the ability to narrate collectively who we are. That's how we're building this we. And so another, uh, an ancestor I want to end with, um, in fact, I want to end with him by quoting one of his countrymen as we think about the fact that tomorrow Lula da Silva will be inaugurated as president of Brazil. Let me, let me see if I can find this quickly. Yes. This is from a book by Femi Ojoade. It's called Home in Exile. Abdias Nascimento, African-Brazilian thinker and pan-African visionary. This is one of those people. Absolutely. Abdias Nascimento. You never heard of Nascimento? Here's another book by him. I didn't pull all of them. One's called Africans in Brazil. I love this book. It's called Mixture or Massacre. Abdias Nascimento. Very important book. But let me read this. Because Nascimento, this Nascimento is an ancestor I want to use to bring in the other ancestor. This is Femi Ade at the beginning of his book on Nascimento. He says, the year is 2007. As Obafemi Oloo University, y'all know that university, University of Ife now. It used to be the University of Ife, now named for Obafemi Oloo. As Obafemi Oloo University is preparing to honor Abdias Nascimento, that's the university in, in Nigeria, as you know. The iconic African-Brazilian scholar, poet, politician, activist. He was a theater guy. He was a poet. He was an artist, musician. Brilliant brother. And we're going to talk about uh, Nascimento when we get to framing question five. We're going to bring him in, in our Africana Studies class. Femi Ojaade says, one's thoughts cannot but center upon his homeland. Back in the good old days of post-independence, the Brazilian football team, Santos, y'all see where we're going, visited Nigeria. The Sinosher of all eyes was one Pele, Ore, the king, the black wizard, the black pearl, the man, the black wizard weaving his magic that devastated defenses and led his Samba nation to three World Cup trophies. His exceptional talent would later translate into fame and fortune in millions of hard currency, marbled mansions and gilded gardens and white women in the whitewashed world of mulattas and morenos masquerading like their masters as Europeans in a society constructed and cultivated by Africa's children forced into slavery eons ago. The king's real name, Pele's real name, is Edson Arantes Donacimento. Thoughts of Brazil. The year was 1977. Talked about it last week. And almighty Nigeria, Africa's giant and home to the world's largest black population ahead of Brazil was hosting Festac. We talked about that last week. Brazil, represented by white and off-white so-called intellectuals, succeeded in officially silencing one of their country's greatest revolutionary minds from revealing the unsavory realities of the lived experience of his fellow blacks in a racial paradise practicing democracy that, for the descendants of slaves, meant nothing but hell. Come on, Sid. Officialdom's mindless marginalization notwithstanding, the conscience of Brazil still managed to present its heart-wrenching positions in a lecture that would later become a document for the ages on Africans' worldwide condition. O genocidio do negro Brasilio, racial democracy in Brazil, myth or reality, foundation for this book right here. The name of the intellectual activist, artist, writer, politician is Aptias dos Nascimento. He talks about the fact that Nascimento shares a name with Pele. 
Nascimento is one of those guys that narrates the story. We're going to talk about him when we get to how did and do Africans make sense and participate in international convenings. We're going to talk about that framing question five. Framing question six, what ideas, leaders, and movements did Africans create in the 20th and 21st centuries to advance their liberation? We're going to talk about that. But I'm bringing Abdidastos Nascimento into the frame to end with Edson Nascimento. That, of course, would be Pele. Pele, nicknamed for one of his favorite players, as the young people called him the name, it was a corruption of the name, and it kind of stuck. Stuck. His birth name, Edson. His parents named him for Thomas Edison. I love this uh, when people talk about Pele. There's a book by Mario Filho called uh, The Black Man in Brazilian Soccer. Y'all should look that book up. It's fascinating to me because uh, they did, in fact, the University of North Carolina Press did a, uh, a new edition in 2021, and I got it around here somewhere. And it's very interesting because um, this guy, Mario Filho, was a Brazilian journalist. The original, he wrote the book in 1947. When Brazil lost the World Cup in 1950. Pele, uh, who uh, was raised in Minas Gerais, in that province, that state in Brazil, black, he black. Okay, and when they lost the World Cup in 1950, um, Pele, who was 10 years old at the time, remember his father crying. His father was a hell of a soccer player, Brazil uh, football player. Right? Minho writes that. Well, everybody, all the all the obituaries you've been reading, we've been reading about Pele says this. He, Pele tells his father, you know, he said, "I never saw my father cry. Brazil lost." The World Cup. My daddy was crying. I told my daddy, "Don't worry. I grew when I grow up, I'm gonna win the World Cup for you." You won three. Imagine it. Here we are, many of us in this room right now in the United States. We know the name Pele. Vaguely for many people, but this is this is the most accomplished player in the most popular sport. And not only in the world now, in the history of the world. There's nobody to compare him to born and raised in the United States with the possible exception. Prof, would you put, I mean, again, I want to ask you this. Maybe Ali? Mm. I mean, Ali, but I'm saying, and, and of course, Pele and Ali, there's a very famous picture you're making the rounds about Ali. You see Ali and Pele embracing. But Pele, what did he mean? And this is what um, Filho writes. He says, after the defeat of Brazil in 1950, who got blamed? The black players on the Brazil team. Hmm. The black players, Barbosa, Juvenal, and Bigoli, they got blamed. But this book that he wrote, this journalist, this Brazilian journalist in 1947, The Black Man in Soccer, he wrote another edition in like 1966, and by then, he says, by then, we don't won the World Cup a couple of times, and Pele becomes the most important player on that team, the most popular uh, football player in the world. And as Nascimento writes, Pele becomes a symbol of Brazil that allows these racists to get, to pretend like, oh, we're not racist. Look, at, look, we got, we got, we got Pele. And they pretending now. But here's the genius, I think, of Pele. And by the way, the black man in Brazil, uh, Brazilian soccer, what uh, Filho does, 
1947, he says, there were black players before. There's a guy named uh, uh, Arthur Friedenreich. His daddy was German, mother Brazilian, Afro-Brazilian. Leonidas da Silva, whose father was Portuguese, mother Brazilian, always the women, always the African women. Anyway, they were like, it was like 20 years between uh, Friedenreich and da Silva, and then another generation between da Silva and Pele, except this time Pele wins the World Cup. Comes back, wins another World Cup. Comes back, wins another World Cup. I think the Mexico World Cup, those of you who are football fans know this much better than that. That's considered like one of the most impressive pieces. And this is what I love about the black man in Brazilian soccer. This is what he writes. He says that the life of a soccer player, he says few people realize how much is demanded of a soccer player. He has to represent a club, Santos, you know, and remember, Prof, you, you, you too young to remember this, of course. I I, rem I, I heard about it. In fact, there have been a couple of documentaries and a book on this. The New York Cosmos. I heard about them. Right, yeah. right. We were all we were too young to remember. I mean, this is the early 70s, mid-70s. 1975, I think, Pele signs a contract because they're trying to penetrate the U.S. market. So there he is, the New York Con uh, Cosmos. as a documentary. They have Studio 54. Hey, out here in the streets, all the cocaine, all the money. But 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 Pele is at the center of this. And one of the things that Philho writes is, he says, a soccer player represents a club, a city, a state, and the nation. What is expected of him is that he embody the best virtues of a man, in the case of the Brazilian, the best virtues of the Brazilian man. Now, here's the thing that he writes about Pele. Regardless of whatever else Pele did or didn't do in his life, here's what he didn't do. He didn't put a knife on his nose. He didn't straighten his hair. Boy, them old Negroes, man. And I know a lot of continental Africans like this. Some of y'all cracking up thinking about what I'm about to say next. I swear, if the continental Africans and Africans in diaspora who, the men now, particularly, who said that they just not going to go gray, if they decided they just not going to put no coloring in their hair, <laughs> I'm not sure that the black hair dye market wouldn't collapse. But anyway, the point is that uh, <laughs> they kept that black hair today, but he never straightened it. Pele made a very important point of saying, I am a black man. Now imagine this, the most popular athlete in the most popular sport in the world, in the history of the world, really. I'm a black man. And I know y'all gonna try to use me this other stuff, and I might do stuff, and you may be like, what is he doing? What is that white woman? No, uh, but I, hey, my mother, my father, my people, black. He went to South Africa in the 1960s. They told him and the other Afro-Brazilian players, y'all can't get off the plane until we, he said, oh, no problem. I'm not coming back to South Africa until Nelson Mandela is free. It was 1995 when he came back. Wow. After Mandela was freed. And I saw Pele. This was June 2007. Nelson Mandela's 89th birthday, July. We were, we were in Cape Town with the students. And, you know, we have class every day. I read the papers in the morning. I saw in the paper they're going to have a game, Africa versus the world. The, the George Weir, who's now the president of Liberia was on that team for representing Africa from all over Africa versus the greatest football players, soccer players of the world. They're going to be in Cape Town for this 90 minutes for Mandela match on Mandela's 89th birthday. The honorary captain of the Africa team, or the world team rather, Pele. We got to go. So we went and bought tickets. We sitting in the stadium. Here come Pele. Ah, everybody's cheering. Stadium packed. He runs into the middle of the field, kicks the ball, 
and then they start the game. And I said, we got to go. I don't know what y'all doing. Uh, y'all can stand it doing them now. We going to walk up. I want to see Pele kick a ball if that's the only thing I get to do. I'm saying, but Pele, so I'm not coming back to South Africa to Mandela's free. Whatever we can say and not say about that brother, about brother Nascimento, our recent, our new ancestor, is that the king of soccer, as he was known, the Black Pearl, he made a point of being black. And when this man wrote this book, The Black Man in Soccer, he says, I'm talking about Pele. He is the black man in soccer. There's many black men in soccer. So whoever comes after him, whoever came before him, Pele gave us that figure. So he's wanted to raise an ancestor's name as we kind of. Gina in the chat said her her uh, dad's best friend played with Pele. On Stop the playing. On the New York Cosmos team. This this newbie is chat, man. This is what we talking to see, Brock. That's it. That is, see, see, no, no, no. That's the really, actually, we can, we, that's the point we're making. Gina, thank you. See, 2023, if we haven't already started doing it, again, we were talking about this the other night. This is the time to interview all the elders in your family. Kathy, Kathy Adams has been doing it at Claflin. And we, she's pointing the way for how we have to do it here in Nubia. God bless these people. And I'll and I I I mention some of these books. Uh, by the way, Tony Warner, I saw you saw on social media, they were talking about this book, Black History Walks. This isn't a 2022 book, but uh, I'm sure you're going to come in newbie at some point because he was mentioning it and doing tours. Um, somebody asked me about Harry and Harriet Moore, and I want to talk about Harry and Harriet Moore who were blown up at their house on Christmas night in Florida. Two school teachers. I've talked about them before, but just a few books from 2022. Uh, of course, my my friend Leslie Fenwick's book, Jim Crow Pink Slip, came out this year. We've talked about that one. Very important. Here's one that we talked about, and I know you got some uh, some th beautiful things in store in 2023, 2023 with our brother. Of course, you talked about this one, Prof, The Door No Return. Oh, yeah. Alexander. oh that's beautiful. That's our brother, yeah. you know, 2022. You know, that's that's one of the books, and they're in no particular order. Um, let me pull a couple more. Um, of course, I mentioned uh, our sister Miriam McGram's book on Margaret Walker, the, soul, the House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker very important since i mentioned biographies i do want to i thought i had it here that damn sunny rollins biography is no joke yo i am loving it but anyway uh saxophone colossus i don't know what i did with it it's around here somewhere and i don't need to show it to you i showed it to you last week marilyn nance's book of course uh last day in lagos about that festac 77 the brazilians oh here it is yeah man this saxophone colossus sunny rollins because, you know, Rollins' people are from the Caribbean, but he's raised in New York City. So, you know, his grandmother would take him to the Garvey Hall, to Liberty Hall. He grew up across the street from and going to the Schomburg. Sonny Rollins, who still walks the earth, Sonny Rollins is deeply invested in Africana. Um, uh, a couple of other ones. This is Leo Zelik's excellent book on Walter Rodney. We talked about that when we were reading Rodney and Nubia. We're going to come back to that. We get around framing questions five and six, a revolutionary for our time. Zelik's book, The Life of Walter Rodney, very important piece. Um, yeah, this is the pricey book, but I, I, I'm just a couple of books. The Palgrave Handbook of African Traditional Religion. This came out this year. I really do love this book. And that actually gives me a chance to mention two other books I think are very important that came out from Baba um, Toyin Falola. Decolonizing African Studies and Decolonizing African Knowledge collected together. These two books really help us break out of this notion that any place on the map should frame our identity as African people. We are African people. Nasimento says this. 
In fact, if I were to pause and go back to Nascimento, I would read from Nascimento's Mixture of Massacre, where he says, wherever we are in the world, we are Africans. And in that book, Mixture of Massacre, he's quoting primarily Africans from the diaspora who are working on this, John Clark, Dr. Ben, so many others, Chance Williams, whose birthday is this month as well, Shake Onto Joke, whose birthday is this month in December. He's quoting them, Abdidastos Nascimento from Brazil, this figure, who is very important in narrating, but these two books help us really understand that, uh, Decolonizing African Knowledge and Decolonizing African Studies. Um, I'll end with, uh, oh, I have to mention my brother, Hakeem Adi, Afro-Brit. Now I know that, uh, that Oz and I told you I already had this, African and Caribbean People in Britain, A History, Hakeem Adi. It's an excellent book. This book just came out. It's uh, almost 700 pages. It is a history of African people and Caribbean people in Britain that doesn't begin in the contemporary era. It begins with the early African presence, then African tutors and, and, and stewards, meaning what? What early African presence? Yeah, before the Europeans. Yeah, you heard. Yes, my, I came out um, My man, Brian Jones at the New York Public Library, in terms of HBCUs, you want a book to grapple with the question of what HBCUs should be doing, could be doing, and in moments when students and faculty push for that, it's this one right here, The Tuskegee Student Uprising, A History, Brian Jones. I love this book. I actually interviewed Brian Jones. And Prof, I would love to hear the conversation between the two of you all. He's there in New York, Brian Jones. Uh, Thulani Davis has an excellent book called The Emancipation Circuit, Black Activism, Forging a Culture of Freedom. Very important. She talks about the networks. It's really a governance. It's a roadmap through governance. I'm going to work some of this in when we get to framing question uh, two. What are some of the similarities and differences in practices of self-determination among Africans in the United States and our counterparts throughout the world, particularly the Western Hemisphere and the diaspora? That's framing question two. We're going to deal with some of the emancipation circuit. And here's the last one. This is an exhibition catalog. If you are in Texas, particularly if you're in Houston, I know um, that Ayanelli went with some of her family to this exhibition catalog. And my sister is, uh, I hope she gets a chance to go. This is the exhibition catalog of photographs that Gordon Parks took of Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael and Black Power. This is a rally, he, it was 1966 he was at. Here's a picture on page 89. Who was he with in 1966, same place? That's Karinga. Mm. With I mean, but he's in here. He's got all kind of pictures of Kwame Turing here. Many of them. This is one of my favorites, though. In Atlanta, SNCC headquarters. This is what we got to do, y'all. Sometimes you just got to sit down at the desk and do the work. Mm. And as they said, the Panthers posted there, move on over or we'll move on over you. Just the whole way. Study car right. Go ahead and parse to that picture. It's a great exhibition catalog. There are a lot more books I can mention, but I won't. Wow, wow. And just uh and I saw Malcolm, somebody in the chat, I think it was uh mentioned Malcolm when you were talking about people like Karenga. Maybe Malcolm's one of maybe Malcolm X is one of those people. Oh my gosh, watch this, watch this. Watch this. Okay. Why do we know Malcolm X? What individual made Malcolm X possible in the way that we know him? Instead of Malcolm Little, hood. Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad more information than Malcolm X. Watch this. Okay. No, actually, I'm not going to say that. Consider this. I was thinking about this the other day as I was re-watching season two 
of Godfather of Harlem getting ready for season three. <laughs> Shout out to that whole cast, right? You know, oh, I can hear Def calling my name. <laughs> anyway, the whole point. What was the central tension, at least essentially, set aside the politics and we know, you know, we should know the personal stuff. Ought to, what was the cent central philosophical tension between Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X? What was Elijah Muhammad's goal? Black self. Yeah, yeah. Self-determination for sure. Malcolm wanted to use the nation as a political force. Yes, to change, to change, to, to be a battering ram against racism and no injustice. Question. No question. And internationally, that that was that that, that definitely I mean, makes sense. Right. Went to the UN. Uh, no you know, got all the people like, oh, we yeah, yeah. He brought all of the people together. To, no question. But but here's the thing, though. Elijah Muhammad say we're not a political organization. We're a religious right. organization. Our job is to bring the people to Islam. Okay. Fast forward to 2022. Are there Muslims in the United States of America who did not come from other places that didn't come through the nation of Islam? I'm not talking about still in it. Because most of them not in it no more. No, I can't think of. Me neither. Any. I'm not talking about the Ahmadiyya movement. I'm no, not talking yeah. about Africans from the. I'm not because there are a lot of influences. In fact, there's a book called uh, on Detroit called Detroit and Old Islam, which talks about all this. So you see the influences on Elijah Muhammad or the Muslims who had come here from other places as well. But Elijah Muhammad, re in fact, the best book, single book on this, I would think, is Michael Gomez, my man Michael Gomez, NYU, his book Black Crescent, where he talks about the Muslims that came on the boat as enslaved the Muslim movements in the late 19th, early century, and he's got a chapter called The Nation. Most of these black people running around here calling themselves Muslim, and this is from somebody who lived in Philly almost 20 years. They Orthodox Muslim now. They Sunni Muslim, they Shia Muslim. But if you tug on them, either they or their parents, or now grandparents, were in the nation of Islam. I don't Ooh. know that you couldn't make a case for Elijah Muhammad, <laughs> really. Okay, all right. Uh, someone in the chat also on the sports tip brought up Jesse Owens. Sure. You mean in terms of influence? Yes, like Pele. Nah, because okay. where they going to track and feel that? I'm just saying. I mean, but this is part of the exercise, right? I mean, Actually, we should... yeah, you know what? So I would love to see some more about that because Jesse Owens, remember Jesse Owens was treated so badly in this country and he's a track and field athlete. Joe Lewis? Mm. Before Mohammed? Joe Lewis. I mean, you know, I mean, like there's their case to be made, but the cases are often U.S. centric. Right. Words, right. Right now, the whole right. world has paused. Right. Pele, right. But in right. the United States of America, we still talking about. I mean, really, show the death of Pele really shows us just how marginal the United States of America is. Yes. Pele and is a work. I guarantee you, at Lula da Silva's inauguration in a few hours in Brazil, they're gonna stop for Pele. They have to, and that's in Brazil. But they're gonna stop for Pele in France. They're gonna stop for Pele in Saudi Arabia. Now, Jesse Owens, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. You are sure, you know. But this is part of the exercise again. You know, we need to know enough before we start. You know. Well, that's important, Ashley, Shalina. Paul Robeson is tough to beat. Hmm. I mean, in terms, but here's the thing. How do we distinguish? See, yes, you you know what, right? We, we, we should, you're, like, you're right, Prof. Jack Johnson. But but Robeson overflows the boundaries. There's no, and, and I see Dr. Delaney here. I'm glad to see my friend, Kim Delaney, our friend who is the director of education programs at the DuSable Museum in Chicago. She's talking about, oh, look at this. All these people 
there's no clear beginning each steps into a tradition right that maybe that's the point yeah thanks doc thank yeah. you dr d and i'm garvey, garvey oh you know what i think yeah, garvey beats yeah. yes i mean but i'm sitting you know this this past few weeks you know coming up with this concept of passing the baton yes i want to i want us to understand that we you know all of us who are excelling in whatever whatever people that you like somebody came before them you know even when you brought up malcolm you, get, you can't talk about him without elijah Muhammad. Nope. you cannot and, and before elijah muhammad without was, louise and earl his parents which means marcus garvey so maybe garvey yeah because garvey influenced elijah muhammad too that's yeah. right yeah so i mean we we have to go back and go back and go back keep going back we have to keep going back. We can't just start right here. No, unknown soldier, I feel you. He says, my elders don't want to talk and those who did talk are now ancestors. Mm. That is- yeah, That's going to be tough. You know, that that part of collecting, uh, you know, that generation, they were taught to not talk, you know, that that to keep it all inside and to not share. I was just um, telling somebody the other day, even talking to my mom about things. I'm talking, I think I was talking to you about, yeah. you, know, yeah. share, you know, trying to get things because her- you know, in her mind, the, the trauma was blocked. So she's not going to ever bring that up. You know, you don't talk about those things. Right. No. And so it's, 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 it's a tough thing, but those of us who are right now conscious, start writing your own words. Don't let That's anybody right. tell your story. You it know? looks like Erica did it. Look, Erica says my 86 year old great uncle called my mom yesterday and I took over the conversation with my recorder for 50 minutes talking about life in Florida, Mississippi. <laughs> He said, this is what I'm talking about. Right. And, and for those who can't, who don't have it, we have each other. As Aisha Imani used to say, when we started Sankofa Freedom Academy, we met at her house to plan out to get him. Now it's a K-12 school. Aisha, we were meeting that first meeting. I'll never forget. Um, we sitting there. And in order to get a charter in Philadelphia, we got to do this state charter. It's the beginning of charter schools in Philly. We didn't. We don't like charter schools. We want public schools, but public schools are charter schools. And we, if we, this is our way to do it, we're gonna do it. We take any tactic. We need to. So how do we do this? We who do we know? And Aisha stood and said, "Well, we know each other." That settled the whole conversation, and we put that together. So if you don't have elders in your family who want to talk, or if you you keep trying, but understand we have each other. Jacob Carruthers said this over and over again. He says, as we worked on something, we're still doing what ASCAT called the, uh, the African World History Project. Mario Beatty and I are the co-editors of that project. The beginning of African world history are the stories of our families and communities. Mm. The story of your family and the story of your community is the most important thing. We don't get to the pyramids except through the families of the people who built them. We don't get to the great achievements. I mean, there's no Pele without his daddy, who was a soccer player, who the boy saw crying, said, don't worry, Pop, I'll win this World Cup for you. And then he did it three times. <laughs> you understand? I mean, it's, we don't get there except our families. Hmm. So, Prof, that baton is constantly being handed. Look at this. All right, y'all. We 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 gonna we gonna pause. We went over two hours. This was a little bit long. That's the other thing. 2023, we're gonna keep it tighter. We have each other. We have each other. Mm. And we have each other. Look at that. There it is. What's tomorrow? Uh oh, can't hear you, Prof. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow is Imani. Imani. Today is Kumba. Tomorrow Imani. is Imani. For all the children who parents named them, I didn't name my uh, my friend Imani Perry's book. I should mention that South to America. Birmingham born, raised on the East Coast, West Coast at Princeton University, my good friend Imani Perry. Her name is Imani, like so many other people. So, I mean, hey, 
You can't you can't wipe that up. It's black. No. <laughs> faith. The faith. In fact, we should end with that. While you're showing the candles, let's just read Imani the way it was written at the beginning of Kwanzaa. To believe with all our heart in our people and the righteousness and victory of our struggle. I said, love you. I said, I said, love you too. Happy everything, y'all. We'll see you uh, in 2023 on Monday, uh, office hours. Dr. Carr, have a wonderful, restful, peaceful, joyous uh, day off. See you next year. <laughs> All right, bye, y'all. Bye.